0: Episode number 25, Steve Lucas. Alright, cut to edge of stage. Great, alright,
1: color frost. Check. One, two, three, check. Stand by, please. Heads to half, house out, lighting cubes one through
0: ten, balance cubes one And welcome back to the Title Block, a show about Canadian theatre designers, their history and their craft, and I'm your host, Michael Cruz, yet again. This time I interview designer Steve Lucas from his cozy design cottage at his home in Creemore, Ontario. We talk about his early career in Calgary, despite his real birthplace, and his work at Buddies in Bad Times Theatre with the late Ken McDougall. We also cover his residency Uh, at Theatre Pass Mirai, and the smash hit two pianos, four hands, while ending with his personal ode to Samuel Beckett called Breathe. First, I wanted to share with you a letter. Uh, Yes, I actually received a letter that came from the head of design at Soul Pepper Theatre here in Toronto, Lorenzo Savoini. Now, I've never said his name out loud, so I'm I'm assuming that's the correct pronunciation. I'm sure he'll tell me if it's not. And I'm not really sure if this show is getting to the audience that it's attended for, uh, which is really the young and, uh, and just starting out designer. But uh, I have pushed on in the hope that I can build an audience that is as fascinated by the stories of Canadian designers as I am. Now, Lorenzo's letter, in fact, confirms this. And I wanted uh, to share his comments with you. Lorenzo writes, Hi, Michael. If I'm honest, I'm not entirely sure if we've met before. I don't think we have but I have been literally meaning to write you for many months now to tell you just how wonderful your podcast is. I'm the head of design at Soulpepper, and I also run the Design Academy here, and I get them to listen to your podcast as just interesting material that will connect them to to their community, but also the living history of their craft in this country. At any rate, after recently listening to Bonnie's episode, I thought Title Block is starting to really add up to something potentially very important to the design community. And... To the next generation, I would have loved to have—I uh, would have loved to have heard these once I graduated and was adrift, feeling like I would never make it in this business. I'm a podcast buff, but I like—but uh, I—but like many, I mostly just binge on This American Life and most recently Alec Baldwin's. Here's the thing: uh, you're doing a great job, and I hope you continue to do so. I really urge you to make sure you interview Michael Levine. Uh, he is living in London now, but has made such an impact on so many designers that he's, uh, he's been a mentor to myself included. And just his body of work speaks for himself. Uh, all the best, Lorenzo. Well, that is so sweet, honest to God. And it really makes me happy that this project is helping to connect new theater artists uh, to their past. And thank you so much, Lorenzo. Now, if you feel like Lorenzo and want to help ensure that I continue to be able to work on the show, please consider going to patreon.com Forward slash the title blog podcast and support the show for a couple of bucks an episode you'll be helping to pay for bandwidth equipment travel and new tech like periscope now for those of those of you who joined us uh, at the bellows on january 18th via periscope the new live broadcast app that works through twitter uh, new is a bit relative there it's been around probably for a couple of years now uh, we had an interesting conversation about working with your friends Called friendship is magic. Friendship is magic. Now you will probably hear everything. Uh, you probably heard everything very well uh, because I was sending the, the recording feed directly into the to, the to the iPad. But the visuals probably left you flat, like they left me flat. Uh, now Periscope. That's because I'm using the camera right on the yeah. iPad. Periscope is now allowing an external video source uh, via GoPro Four, uh, both the silver and the black editions. Uh, but these are a considerable expense at around six hundred dollars Canadian. Uh, it'll be great to share these types of live events and make them as high quality as possible so you can actually see people's faces, for example. Uh, and with your support on Patreon, it would help. So there's my plug. Now, our next Periscope, if you're interested in joining us, we'll go live on February 22nd at 7.45 p.m. We were, we were a bit early last time. I thought we were starting a bit earlier, but 7.45 p.m. is when we'll go live. The show will start at 8 o'clock, so you'll be able to join us, get your popcorn, and sidle up to the old uh, iPad uh, or your Android device. And we will once again be at the Theatre Past Mariah in Toronto to talk about this time why you need a production manager. Probably a very important and essential conversation. The guests list uh, is yet to be shared with me, but I'm sure it'll be uh, a terrific lineup. Uh, instructions to tune in will be at thetitleblock.com. Uh, there's already a post up there from the last one that was on January 18th, but uh, I'll, I'll be posting another one just to, to make it clear. Uh, it's really just as easy as installing the app on your iOS or Android device and searching for the title block. That's it. Um, while you are at it, you can find us at Twitter uh, at thetitleblock.ca and on Facebook forward slash the title Block podcast. And you can always, like Lorenzo did, send me an email at the uh, at thetitleblock.com Uh, at gmail.com as well but enough jammering on now my interview with designer steve lucas steve lucas has been a designer for almost 30 years my god i'm old for the last three decades steve has designed award-winning sets and lighting for more than 300 productions of theater dance and performance art and we'll talk about that in a second. His work has toured extensively and has been seen all across Canada, the United States, the UK, Europe, Scandinavia, Russia, Australia, and Asia—not Antarctica,
1: not yet. Slacker,
0: <laughs> welcome, Steve Lucas. Welcome to the title block. Thank we're, you. We're sitting here in your beautiful studio here in
1: Creamer, Ontario. To say it's good to be here, but I didn't go anywhere.
0: I know. Welcome. Thank you for this. Is what I said to. Uh, the on the last on the last interview with uh, Bill Schmuck. Uh, thank you for joining me uh, today, Bill. He said yes in my office. I said yes. Thank you for joining me in your office. So here we are in your uh, studio here in Creamer, Ontario. Uh, just for those who think that this is a Toronto-centric podcast, because <sighs> really it is. Because I get to, I mean, I mean, I, I could drive to guilty as charged. I could drive to Manitoba, but that's a bit of a long drive. So
1: it's a nice drive. Is it? Northern I, Ontario.
0: Man. I hear Sudbury and beyond is a bit rocky. Every well, yeah, but not in a bad way.
1: <laughs> okay, as long as the weather's okay. Don't do it at night; that would be stupid. But the moose. Every time you come over a hill, you'll go wow and want to take a picture. Every single hill, we did that. We just did the drive a few years ago with the kids all the way to to BC mm-hmm. to Vancouver Island.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Right. Okay, wait. There's a
0: podcast. Oh, right. Um, let's talk about your other career because you are now i said that because it's a preface to my my, uh, my next question which is you're not from toronto originally you grew up someplace else right
1: uh i was born in brampton what i know exotic uh and but i was raised in calgary
0: and when did you move to calgary uh grade six okay and then what happened how did you how did you get back here first of all Grade six, Calgary. Yeah. Uh, how did you decide to go into theater? What uh, started you off on that journey?
1: Uh, well, uh, junior high uh, was the first time I had no intention of going into theater. It was always going to be film. When I was a kid, I had a, a great love for movies. And it was uh, it was always like a birthday treat. Whenever I had a birthday, my parents or my dad would take me to go see a movie. And, and it came out of uh, a love of film and then wanting to understand how movies were made. And I was, you know, Uh, I was going to movies, you know, in the the 70s. So, you know, my first love was like Smokey and the Bandit and all the stunts and that. And then it was Jaws. And that was a big thing, you know, in my life was how on earth did they do that? Mm -hmm. And then two years after that, there was this little movie called Star Wars. Uh, And and with it came all of the, the making of things, all the specials on TV back before we had VHS or DVDs with extras, you know, before we had home entertainment systems of any kind. There would be those, you know, Behind the scenes, special effects things, and Starlog magazine, and it was all, it was all wanting to understand the craft of filmmaking. And when I got into junior high, I was like, "Oh, look, a, a drama class! You know, that might be a good way of like." I was convinced I was going to be a director. I decided at a, at a very early age I was going to be a director, and that you know I'm very goal oriented, and I decided that at the age of 28, I'd be getting my first Best Director Oscar and be the youngest person to ever be awarded that. And on my 28th birthday, John Singleton got that exact same thing. He was the youngest person I think that ever won at that point. Anyway, but I am not John Singleton. Um, but getting into uh, theater uh, as a method of getting into film, I just basically got sidetracked and fell in love with it.
0: You know. And what was your first? Uh, did was it high school or junior high? Actually, it was junior high. Yes. Yeah, what starting... was your first production you
1: ever did? That's a good question. I have no idea. You have no idea. Um, yeah, it wasn't even about, it was more about the the camaraderie around it. I mean, we did, um, I think we did a production of Oklahoma. We did, I remember we did something in high school. It, there were no productions per se in, uh, in junior high, but we did, you know, we did stage combat, which, you know, I was a very active, hyperactive kid actually. And so it gave me something to, do with all that extra energy uh and just getting to play make-believe and then realizing that there's lights and that you know you can point that and do different things with it and i actually worked for the school board uh on the weekend sam shaw who now works at harborfront he and i uh went to high school together and we actually worked for the school board and ran uh rentals in our theater at in high school so like i was a you know technician at the age of you know 14 yeah you know, actually getting paychecks—it you know, was great.
0: Did you have much um, interaction with theater Calgary? Did you see shows there,
1: or I or saw maybe? shows there. I had. Uh, it was Alberta Theater Projects got me into theater in the first place. Uh, we uh, in the last year of high school, we had the, the Sears Drama Festival, uh, which was my equivalent of like the high school, you know, football player touchdown, you know, prom king thing. Was that we won the Sears Drama Festival. Oh and I directed a piece that was in, there was like a, a smaller, there was the main stage and there was the, a the smaller uh, productions. And I directed one of those based on this, that was an original piece that came out of our drama class. Uh, and Sam was actually in. He'd probably hate me for telling this story. Um, he was great in it, by the way. Anyway, but, uh, and we won for that as well. And on top of that, so that's two. But I got the hat trick because I, I can't even remember how I did it, but I managed to wheedle my way into being the the assistant to the adjudicator, who was Michael Dobbin, who was the artistic director at Alberta Theatre Projects. Right. So like all in the same couple of days, I won the best director. Uh, I designed the the show that won the main stage, and he gave me uh, a job at Alberta Theatre Projects, which was uh, just a it was like a. Um, a government grant. It was $25 a week to go and work there for a full season. But it was the season that they moved into the performing arts center in Calgary when it was just being built. So I worked there that whole summer, uh, and, uh, and got to know the building and all the new gear arrived. And I worked there the whole year and I got to work with some really, you know, amazing people like Jeffrey Dallas came through and did a show. Uh, Michael Egan came through and did a show And Michael Egan actually showed up uh, to do a production of uh, Noises Off. And when he arrived for his residency, he had not drawn anything, like nothing. So it was my job as like the 19-year-old, I remember the production manager saying, sit here and listen to his stories. And I sat beside him and watched him draft for like three days. And once in a while, he'd go out on the roof and smoke a joint and come back in and draft some more. And he just talked and talked. And I didn't realize who Michael Egan was. I had no clue. He is somebody you should interview, by the way, because he's a hoot. We definitely have plans to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's hilarious and everything rhymes, you know. It's not on the page. It's not on the stage, you know. But... But truisms, like little bits of, little pearls of wisdom he was dropping. And I was just, you know, I was the cute little 19-year-old boy. Go sit beside him and keep him him talking, keep him drafting. Mm -hmm. And watching him draw for days Mm -hmm. was like, I didn't know that people could do that.
0: Is that a, that seems to be an experience that may be a lost opportunity now that everyone's using AutoCAD. Mm. Because that'd be a much less... I don't know, appealing thing to do to watch you draft,
1: draft on autocad. Absolutely, you know yeah. What I mean? You're like watching somebody edit film instead of doing card tricks. Yeah, yeah. exactly, you exactly. Know? Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Um, now, did you? So you're 19 year olds, 19 years old at ABT, not ABT. That's <laughs> Alberta Ballet Theater. That's something completely different. Let me start again. So you're 19 years old at uh, Alberta Theater Projects ATP. Uh, did you think about Training at this point because you're now out of high school. I mean, you're you're getting a what is a traditional theater education right through yeah uh, through apprenticeship basically right yeah
1: without the student debt yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so no and at that point I was still I was still going to be a director it was still all about getting into directing it was still all about I'm not sure it was still about film at that point at that point I'd seen I saw a production of Equus that completely blew my mind I saw a production of Streetcar that was like all venetian blinds and lighting i was like wow and um that my i think my drama teacher was actually in that from junior high and that was like mind-blowing to watch her on stage but uh, uh and a production of uh buried child you know that just terrified me the ending of that play was like you can do scary things on stage and and just bit by bit my my view opened up but also the number of the people like the the designers and the the actors that came through that building in that first year was astonishing and just yeah and, you know when all the new lights arrived and that new that new gear smell you know it's very tantalizing so yeah bit by bit i got sucked into it
0: what uh, just as a sidebar what kind of gear did they was it all electro control stuff that they had bought out there because it would be Calgary in the early 80s right late 70s I don't remember.
1: I really. Yeah. I think there was a lot of Berkey Color trends, which at the time was like the best of the best. I oh, remember right. those because you could change the degree. Wow! Oh my God. But they had a, They had a a, a Premiere Pro, the lighting uh, console. It looked like something out of the uh, the first generation of Star Trek. It was like all wood paneling. It wrapped right around you. It was a gigantic desk. It had a heads up display. So like this piece of glass at an angle so that you could like see a reflection. And we had two of them because one of them was a backup. Was a backup. Yeah. So there was, yeah, which I'd never even heard of before the idea of having a backup board. It's yeah. like, you're. this is like Christmas. Decadence. It's just decadence. I remember when I, when I got to the poor Alex, I did my first show at the poor Alex. And it was like, Oh, we're at a gaff tape. Where do I get more gaff tape? And they're like, no, that was it. <laughs> like, no, but <laughs> I just, yeah. So that was a resource management was something I didn't learn until, you know, the poor Alex Theater Center days.
0: Yeah. I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I worked at the um, center in the square in Kitchener, which was a state of the art touring yeah. house. Giant twenty two thousand 2000 seat theater, uh, 2000 feet th- uh, theater. And then the, the grid is like 90 feet and it's 60 by 80. <laughs> like it's a giant house. And then I went to Ryerson to go to school at the Ryerson Theater, which was woefully out of date still using century dog legs and you know the hemp lines hadn't been changed for who knows how long uh and i was supremely disappointed (laughs) 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 Uh i thought well aren't all theaters like this state-of-the-art theater i grew up in come on guys where's
1: all your gear well i mean i kind of i i I didn't mind that the the downgrade as it were in technology because at the same time I was I was actually allowed to touch things you know where you know a lot of the time I wasn't like the idea of touching that Premiere Pro I would have had my fingers broken by the lighting guy like forget it but you know at the poor Alex I could stand on a chair refocus for nails you know it's like I can do anything here this is great so you
0: at what point did you decide that directing I mean you still wanted to be a, a director but not in film mm.
1: in theater right mm-hmm.
0: um, what was your next step then after uh, Alberta theater projects
1: uh, I left and came to Toronto um, oh right we skipped over this uh, the first thing I did is my in my apprenticeship at at Alberta theater projects was they, they said oh you stage manager right? and I said oh yeah, yeah yeah I know everything there is to know about stage management of course I do you know I was 19 and arrogant right uh, and so they gave me uh, a workshop. Uh, that was in a little office building uh, that they were using because the performance art, art center was still under construction. And it was a new play by uh, this guy from Toronto named Sky Gilbert, mm. and uh, called "The Postman Rings Once, Twice, Once." I can I can remember which ones the movie, which ones the play. So there's The "Postman Rings Once."
0: I think so because the postman always rings twice. Is the movie, is the movie think, yeah. okay?
1: How do you think I get this straight? And and so I met Sky uh, and I stage managed this thing and we didn't have much contact, uh, but uh, there was Sky Gilbert. And then uh, when I moved to Toronto, uh, which was only in, I I came to Toronto when I was 19, like right after that. uh, And I was only going to be here for a few weeks while, and I was going off to Europe with some friends, but we got here and everything changed, you know? Uh, when you take a, a group of friends out of Calgary and drop them into downtown Toronto, everything changes. Uh, and eventually I managed to get myself a job being a busboy. And, uh, and one day there was this new busboy come on named Jim Jones, who was an actor, uh, but also a busboy. And so I trained him. And in exchange for training him for the day, he said, hey, let's go crash this opening at this theater right down the street called TWP. So we crashed the opening of a play called B-Movie. Which is a classic
0: Toronto yeah. thing. I, yeah. I mean I remember people seeing it when I was in Kitchen What
1: what, what year was this? 1987, 1988. Yeah, that's about right. I remember there the
0: big scene, there was a big 86. scene in that thing where they did a they went from black and white. They did the thing was mm. shot it was uh, designed in black and white and at one point Somebody walks on stage, some sort of blonde bombshell, and the entire thing goes to color. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Godzilla
1: makes a a cameo appearance, and like it's a crazy show. Yeah, I actually talked to uh, Bob Baker because I I thought that'd be great for Theater Orangeville, and he said, "Yeah, Um, what's the name of the guy who wrote it?" Bob Baker's partner. Anyway, he said he won't let anybody do it. It's too it's too dated now. He doesn't think it'd work again. And which I think is a colossal shame as somebody who's a big fan of old films. Like I would love to see, it. I would love to get a crack at designing that. Are you kidding me? But he won't let it be done again. So there it is. But anyway, at that opening was Sky Gilbert. Right. And there was this new thing in Toronto called a futures grant. And he said, how old are you? And I said, 19. And he said, perfect. I can get you on this government grant, making just slightly more than the $25 a week I'd made in in Calgary. So but through that, I met everybody else. So, your question was, "How did I become a designer?" Was I was working a lot with uh, Ken McDougal, uh, who was a phenomenal director and sadly missed. Um, uh, and uh, he had a show that needed designing, and Stefan uh, Droke was too busy to do it. So he said, "It's just a little one person show. You're drawing." All-. I was always drawing. I always had sketchbooks, and I was drawing constantly. He said, "You're always drawing all the time. Why don't Why don't you do it?" And so I said, "Yes." And that was See Bob Run, mm-hmm. uh, which was Daniel McIver's first show in Toronto as well, uh, and it was a hit and toured right across the country. And I ended up doing two. So there was the original production, and then we did a remount, which then had to be built to tour. So that was my first show. Was also my first tour right off the bat. So
0: tell me about see Bob Run. See Bob Run. What was it uh, about, and what was what was compelling about it that you found uh, this is it, what I need to do for the rest of my <laughs> you know, or at least for a good significant
1: part of my life. Uh you know what it was was uh, was I got a good review. <laughs> 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 to be honest, uh, like the the process of it was fun, uh, and it was great. Like, I, and I'd done enough lighting design at school you know, that I, I, I kind of knew where to point the lights and stuff. And I'd been watching Stefan like on uh, Steel Kiss and and uh, and I'd been uh, working on several Sky shows as like ASM and just doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, I just kind of did it. It's like, I want to have a light over here. I want this to be blue. I want this to be warm, you know, and I had a good side and a bad side of the road. And there was like this car seat in the middle. So it was very simple because we had no money. But I got a review that they called it, a model of creative economy. And that became my design philosophy. I mean, to this day, (laughs) really, you know, like less is more, you know, it can be more. Absolutely. If you're, if you're careful about what you choose, you can get away with very, very little. That's
0: fantastic. And that's a pretty big um, litany of first starts, right? Or people that you're working with, Dom, uh, McDougall, uh, Sky Gilbert, Daniel McIver. yeah. Um, Sky was already an established, uh, probably national, nationally known artist, but Daniel McIver was at the beginning of more or less his beginning of his career. Right? Oh, it was
1: right at the start, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he had written that for Caroline because they came for Caroline Gillis. They'd come to Toronto together, and he's like, yeah. So he wrote it for her. He figured it would be easy to produce. He and Ken, I don't, not sure how he and Ken. Hooked up, how they were friends, but uh, yeah, we did that. And away way he went, yeah.
0: And did you stay his? Um, we did you work with that that team a lot? Yeah,
1: yeah. Basically, for the rest of Ken's life, I I designed. Uh, you know, Never Some Alone. Well, not all of them. They, they 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 did shows like Tutu Tango. I didn't have anything to do with. Uh, Never So Alone. There was others. Never So Alone was a big one for sure because that was that was one that I really. Uh, like we built furniture for and, uh, and I still have some of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was huge. And, and when that got remounted was the last show I did with Ken, um, cause he died. Um, but that was also the best working experience we ever had, which is, you know, both wonderful and a shame all at the same time, you know,
0: Can you tell me a little bit about Ken McDoodle? What was it like to work with him? How was he as a, as a director and a, and a personality? he was phenomenal he was a
1: really good friend as well uh he he has so much creativity in him that like he could dance he could like, he was like a singer dan- he was like a triple threat kind of guy and we never got to do a musical together i mean he 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 was in Susie goo private secretary you know which was which was also a big show for me at the george street buddies
0: another uh, sky gilbert another sky uh, gilbert
1: masterpiece um uh I don't know, like, it's a, of all the people that we we lost to AIDS, like, I, I can't think of how different the theater scene in this country would be if he had been working for the last, well, it's 20 years now he's mm-hmm. been gone and how much of an impact he was having, you know, when he got, you know, when he died, you know, it, it just, it, it breaks my heart, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, it, not just as a friend, but as a, as a creator. Like the, there was nobody better than him, nobody.
0: Uh, and uh, Scott, you you were instrumental in managing the transition to Twelve Alexander of Buddies in Bad Times, which was the old TWP space. space yeah. Um, can you tell me about that uh, journey and how that started? And
1: yeah, they 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 wanted to have they they didn't want to hire a theater consultant per se. They wanted to, they put together a team of designers and originally it was Jim Plaxton, Stefan Drogue and me. Uh, and Jim came to one meeting and left and said, I've done this. I don't need to do this again. And he was done. And so Stefan and I for quite a while, uh, like a year. And then Stefan dropped out as well. Uh, he and Sky had a falling out, I believe, but I won't speak to that. Uh, but, uh, he was gone and I brought Andrea Lundy in, uh, uh, like in the 11th hour, like it, it, all the architecture at that point was settled. Uh, and uh, it was more about uh, picking gear and 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 like the grid design. I think that was well underway as well. Stefan had a big hand in that, but I, I saw it right through and I learned a lot about theaters and architects in that process. And it was great. It was Martin Lee Faber and Associates was the, the architect on that, and it was it was a, it was an amazing uh process but i learned a lot of things and one of the things was that it's that you really need to hire a theater consultant you know uh and uh and that architects have a completely different understanding they they were architects who who specialized in green buildings which made all the sense in the world except that they wanted to do like um ready heating in the flooring in the main space they wanted the whole ceiling to be silver so it would reflect the heat back down it was like okay no
0: (laughs) first of all we need a trap yeah and the, and second of all we don't want to see the ceiling yeah tra- when turn and, all the lights on right?
1: screws are going into this floor yes. you know and after doing years and years at george street it's like everything needs to be able to be hosed down you have no idea what kind of parties they throw in here frankly either do i i don't get invited to them and that's okay they're not for me but i've seen the aftermath of these parties on several occasions so like everything needs to be able to be hosed down you cannot possibly imagine what's going to happen in this theater artistically and socially yeah. you can't wrap your mind around it. So we have to accommodate for everything. So make it all unbreakable. Mm-hmm. If it's not wood, make it concrete, make it steel and everything's going to get painted black. Yeah. Like you need to understand that. And we, we went to, um, we toured a couple of theaters. One was the premier dance theater and, and the, uh, and the ice house, whatever it's called now. Mm-hmm. Uh And uh, we're showing them the light locks are a perfect example of it. When we moved into, on the, on the architecture drawings, it said steel door, steel door, steel door. Great. And we had double doors. We move into the space, they're glass. And I said, why are these doors glass? It's a light lock. They said, well, they're not, they're steel doors. See, it's all steel framing. These are glass doors. like for the first show, they put up black paper because they didn't want to paint it. And then they painted it. So they're still glass. But it's painted black. The wind the door to the park, which was meant to be able to be opened or just draw back drapes, you get some light in there, right? and and be able to do theater in the park if they wanted to. Black. All over those glass. I mean, it just broke my heart. It's like, what are you doing? Why are these glass? Uh, but also like with the architecture drawings, you have your you have the architectural drawings, you have the electrical drawings, you have the, the heating and air conditioning, you got the plumbing. Like I've never seen so many drawings in my life. Uh, and I took the HVAC ones and went, well, I don't need that. And I moved it off to the side. It's like electrical. I need to know plumbing, you know, whatever. I don't really need to know that as long as I know that there's sinks and showers. And I used to, and this was before 3d modeling and everything, I would sit for hours and just like 3d, like spatial understanding is something that I have, you know, in, in, innately so like I would just do walkthroughs of the building in my mind like I'm coming in the front door and I want to get up to that office how am I going to get there now how am I going to get there now it's like oh shit that's a dead end you know so we got to change this and I'm, I'm really good at that sort of thing but when we got into the space when we're when Tallulah's was when they went we to put the grid into Tallulah's there was this gigantic steel box over the stage and I was like what the hell is that said, so, well that's the plenum What's a plenum, you know? And this is why you don't put away the HVAC drawings, you know? It's the size of a VW bug. And that's why to this date, you know, those, the grid goes around that because what else are we going to do? It's like, okay, we're going to need more elbows. We're going to need to cut all this pipe and there, your cost goes up again. And it's just, yeah, I learned a lot doing that. Yeah, indeed.
0: Um, Do you want to talk about, just before we leave Buddies in Bad Times Theater, Mm. let's talk about Peep Show. Uh Only because that's the one show that we've worked on together. Uh, one of probably the only one. I think it's the only time. Yeah. That's bizarre. I'm well, not too sort of bizarre. I'm a lighting designer. You're a lighting designer. That's what happens.
1: Yeah. We don't play well together.
0: Uh, first of all, Peep Show was in the main space at um, 12 Alexander. At 12 Alexander. And yep. And uh, Sherry Hay was your co
1: designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by. Uh, Kelly, Kelly. Uh, 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 it's right here. Kelly Thornton. There it is. Kelly this. Thornton. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She's got a quote right on the wall right yeah, there. she's right beside Wait, you. I, Her name came to me immediately. <laughs> I was only pretending. Hi, Kelly. Love you, Kelly. She's <laughs> awesome. She is awesome. Um, uh, tell me, first of all, t- talk to us about the show. It was the concept. Uh, and The concept came from all three of us. We had, it was a, such a wonderful process to do is we were given, Uh, What was it that, well, still to this day is an outrageous budget. I remember they were going to give us like five grand to do that show, you know, as a, as a budget. I'm like, no, no, no. But we're looking at 25 grand. Like it was huge. Uh, And we got it. I think we got almost all of that to build that colossal set. But the three of us would get together uh, once a week or every couple of weeks for, for a full year and just scheme out this thing. And, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm Mr. Practical, you know, I'm a Virgo. And like I'm, I'm always like, yes, it would be great if we had a second floor. No, that's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> yeah, we could do it. The whole second floor could be a park up there. Wouldn't that be cool? It's like, yes, that would be awesome. It's not going to happen. So, like, let's focus on this. So, and and Sherry and I had very different roles in that. In that. I just I did the structure. I did the the mapping out of where everyone goes and how it's going to revolve and like how everything how the crowd moves. What it was just to describe it quickly was was if you imagine a circle in the middle of a giant rectangle, which is Buddy's, as a circle space, and then out from that were like spokes on a wheel, going out to the um, the edges of the rectangle, and that was all walled in. So it was all hallways and these little chambers. There must have been what a dozen of them going around. I'm trying to remember. Might I maybe
0: ten. ten. I think ten was right, yeah. I think ten. To four in each corner and then two on the each. Yeah, because you had a central alley that you yeah. would walk through. Yeah. And then the middle was two other pieces, right, mean, with the trailer and the strip tees or whatever it was. Yeah.
1: And they, and they were like radically... One was an art gallery filled with vaginas. One was, one was literally a trailer that we had to cut in half to get in the building.
0: Did you see that recent project where the uh, artist... Uh, cast uh, a bunch of his female friends' vaginas and had an installation. I just yeah. I thought the exact same thing as we did that in Peep Show.
1: Yeah, yeah. was so
0: fifteen years. Ago. We oh did God. that fifteen years ago. That's yeah. right. But yeah. go on. T- describe this.
1: So, show. Uh, it, and they were just very different interiors. And and that was Sherry's job. Sherry's job was was filling those. So I was in charge of of the structure of it. Uh, all all the walls, all the doors, all the all the finishes of the walls, all the stuff on the inside was 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 Sherry. Uh, and I knew, I knew right away she was going to get buried in that, you know, just because of the sheer volume, and and also because she's so detail oriented, she's phenomenal. Like we worked together quite a bit on things like on the shadow balls of the AGO and stuff, uh, and had a great time working together. Uh, I think this just about killed her. I remember her being in tears at the end of it because she wasn't quite bringing it all together, but we pulled that off. And and I, the original plan was, I think was for me to do the lighting design. And I realized, you know, again, you know, Mr. Practical, that that was stupid because it was so huge uh, that we really needed to bring in another person. And that was you, you know, we, you know, we talked about a couple of people and you were the, you were our first choice. It's like,
0: That's crazy nice to know. Yeah. Uh, it was really, uh, it was, it was like designing 10 different little mini plays within, and then a larger, there was a, remember we had a larger sort of carnival
1: in the middle, uh, yeah.
0: Thing in the middle, and then with all these sort of Chinese lanterns lighting all the way, and yeah. that had its own kind of cycle. But then each of the little vignettes that were done, and what were they There was a, there was a woman who had just killed her husband. Yep. That, that was uh, who, who was who was the actress? Oh, I forgot. Was that Aviva? It, it was Aviva. <laughs> she and she was just sort of staring off into space, and there was blood. She was in a, half a trailer. You guys had cut a trailer apart, and yeah. then sort of did like a cross section, and she was sort of sitting in this trailer yeah. amidst all this blood. Yeah, it was
1: all about seeing private things that you shouldn't be seeing. Yeah, it was exactly. like these little windows into these different people's lives. Remember Clinton with uh, Clinton Walker with the with this family made out of cereal boxes. boxes? Oh yeah,
0: yeah, that it, little fantasy where he did puppets. he yeah. did little puppets. He was boxes. like the dad
1: of the perfect family, and they were all like one was corn pops, yeah. one was like frosted legs. <laughs> it was pretty
0: incredible. It was
1: ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and the guy who collected every part of his. He was an obsessive compulsive. Yeah. Yeah. Collected all his fingernails. We had little yeah. jars of urine yeah. or faux urine. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible yeah. installation. Yeah. I remember following uh, the ooze, uh, Richard Azunian around. <laughs> and uh, he was being very pretentious about it. Um, because of course you could chat about it. I mean, the idea was you went between these little exhibits and with your friends. And, yeah. and, and experienced it as a community as a, rather than just sort of being passive observers. Yeah. And, uh, And so he was discussing his whole review (laughs) as he was walking through this thing, which of course was very disdainful because this was a different experience for people, right? That kind of, uh, uh, not not necessarily site-specific, but certainly interactive and not, you had to be... Not linear. Not (laughs) linear, yeah, Yeah. exactly. You had to piece together all the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's great. Um, And I think that's sort of endemic of the kind of work that maybe has been done there in the past people have, have been willing to take chances mm. uh, at buddies
1: not at that scale though not that i'm no, aware of that's true you know and the fact that that wasn't even nominated for adora mm-hmm. it that like that doesn't make any sense to me at all like at all and it's not that i need another you know dora it's not about me it's about like how does that not get recognized how do you do show on that scale with that level of detail in that space and it and it goes completely unrecognized like and even the reviews that didn't you know didn't much care for it or didn't see the story within it even that even in them they said you know but you should go see this anyway because it's just bananas like anyway yeah
0: i agree i totally agree uh, we'll get to that in a second. Now, tell me about, uh, so we talked about Danny McIver. Anything else that you did with him that was really, you felt was really important for you to mention?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Never So Malone was a big one. Uh, uh, and C. Bob Run started my career. So that's, that's, that's the Danny years. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, how the heck did you end up touring with Robert Lepage as an assistant director?
1: Um, tell me that story. Uh, yeah, I, I'd been working a lot. At the time, I'd been working with um, uh, with Ken a lot, with, uh, with uh, Sky a lot, with Hilla Latoya a lot. And, and, and I decided that I was, you know, it was time, you know what, I, I applied for um, uh, National Theatre School for their directing program, which involved doing two acting auditions, which I'm woefully terrible at. Uh, so I didn't get in. So I came up with another plan. Like how am I going to learn to be a director? And I decided that I was going to mentor with somebody. All right. Let me
0: just stop you there for a second. Sure. That seems to be a quintessential problem in director training, doesn't it? How many design, how many people come out of the design uh, discipline and become directors? Not many. Not and many yet, at all. It seems like an obvious move.
1: Yeah, it does happen. I mean, it does happen from time to time, but not often.
0: Yeah. And the fact that you're, the assumption is that you're an actor and understand acting.
1: Which is not a bad assumption at all. I mean, you asked me why I stopped wanting to be a director. It's because I directed a a, a rhubarb show. At the end of the day, it comes down to that. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I got into a room of, actors, all of whom were way more experienced than me, some of whom were friends, I realized I had no idea how to talk to these people. And that was sort of it. And also I realized that I was spending all my time uh, I designed these chairs for it uh, that had like... Edges that, that fit together on one side and were smooth on the other. So, oops, so like with different characters had different chairs and like some chairs wouldn't fit into the other chairs, but some fit. chairs fit really well. And I realized that all I was doing was designing the show mm-hmm. and like what it looked like was more important to me than anything else. And I realized that I maybe was making, that maybe just making pretty pictures was good enough for me, you know
0: you know. Okay, so back on to Robert Lepage, how did you...
1: Um, I made it, I decided I was going to mentor with somebody that that would be the next best way to uh, to learn how to direct, and so I made a list of, like, five directors I'd like to work with, and all, it's just ridiculous. It was, like, Robert Wilson and Igmar Bergman, and, like, you know, like, and, and Robert was, I can't remember who the other two were, but, like, like, what are the odds? But I'd actually met Robert um, uh, once, uh, and a uh we had a mutual friend, uh who's a guy named Paul Lefebvre. And Paul Lefebvre uh, uh is a guy from Montreal, elegant guy, bow ties all the time. Just just he's a academic. He worked at the National Um Arts Center for a while as like the assistant on the French side. Anyway, he's just this wonderful, wonderful man who knows everybody and is very well educated. Uh anyway, and he he was uh he was a friend of um of Hiller's and and uh, and was sort of on the periphery of DNA, um, and helped get DNA into Quebec when we were touring. Uh, with uh, this is what happens in Orangeville, and later with the Last Supper, and uh, he uh, he he was at Hiller's old apartment, and we had all this paper that Hiller got donated from somewhere, and we were at a party and everybody was drinking and smoking, and, and he didn't do either. He was like a you know like a straight edge guy. Mm-hmm. But he had this habit, instead of doodling, what he would do is he would write the first sentences of imaginary novels, and it was all this paper. So he started writing all these things down. There'd been this big paper fight where people were throwing paper in the air like, confetti and it was just this magical wonderful night at this party then I realized there's this quiet guy sitting on the floor cross-legged with a bow tie writing on this piece of paper and I was like what are you doing and he and he was writing on one and he'd make a little pile he said oh it's this this thing I do I won't try and do the French accent uh you know I write first sentences for this is chapter one and then he'd write it was a dark and stormy night in chapter one Tonight I feel somewhere west of myself. That was my favorite. So there is a lot of broken English, mm-hmm. and, but they were just sentences. And I and I said, "Can I have these? I am going to make a show out of this." And he said, "Sure, go ahead." So when he was done, I took them and I made a show out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirsten Johnson and I uh, co-created, and this is again, this is one of my geniuses is knowing my limits. So she dealt with the actors, and I dealt with you know staging and with the set and the lights, and we did it at the. Um, the Lippincott version of the theater center. So not the old theater center, but the old, old theater center. You can tell how old somebody is by what they call the old theater center.
0: That's the one that was beside Buddies, right? In the, in the East End? Or is this the one that was in the Legion?
1: No, neither. Uh, this was uh, just south of Harvard, off of Bathurst. Oh, God. It's condos now. Okay. It, it's before your time. Yeah, this is, it's where they moved after poor Alex. Right. So the theater center, when I first got to Toronto, was at the Port Alex. And then it moved to this space. And it was a great space. There's a movie that was shot in that building uh, about a hockey player and there's a wedding in it. I can't remember the name of the movie now. It's a good movie. Anyway, so you can actually see that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So I took all these and I made a show. And because Paul was good friends with Robert, Robert happened to be in town doing tectonic plates. And Robert came and saw the show and loved it. And... And then this weird sense, of, series of coincidence happened where I kept bumping into him at different places. Like I was going to see a movie, and he happened to be there. So we saw the movie together. We went and had a drink at a patio in Yorkville afterwards. Mm-hmm. And like bit by bit, you know, I just kept seeing him. When I when I went saw so Dragon's Trilogy at the factory, if you can imagine that, oh, um, he was right beside me. You know, for the whole show, I was like, oh, hi, I remember you. And we'd had a little chat there. And I finally got up the nerve. There was a grant through Theatre Ontario that, well, it still is, I think, the Professional uh, training, uh, Theatre Artist Training Grant, whatever it is, for people who want to change disciplines. Uh, I've had a lot of people that I've mentored on that grant uh, over the years. And I applied for that to go and work for him. And I finally got up the nerve to ask him, you know, there's this grant I'd like to come and work with you on something. He said, sure. What do you want to work on? I went, uh, I don't know. What do you got? He said, well... I'm doing this new show called Polygraph. We've done a workshop, but we're going to do a full production. You want to come to Montreal? It's in like, you know, three months. You can come and work on that. Great. So I applied for the grant and didn't get it. Uh, and I called him and I said, listen, I'm sorry, I didn't get the grant. He said, so? I said, so? I'm not coming. And he said, why? I said, because I didn't get the grant. He said, so? Come anyway. I've got a spare room. You can stay here. So I moved in with him. And I lived with him and rehearsed for like six weeks as an that's assistant it. director.
0: How is it possible that someone applies for a grant from Theatre Ontario for a job with Robert Lepage that already exists and doesn't get it? I have no that's idea. That's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. Okay, so you moved to Montreal in, in
1: Lapage's <laughs> guest bedroom. Yeah. And how was the show? How was that? It experience? was phenomenal. Uh, it was great. It was so much fun. And, and uh, it was just him and uh, two other actors and me in a rehearsal hall. And then we'd go out for dinner after rehearsal, and he kept buying me dinner because I wasn't making any money. Uh, you know, so, you know, I had a little bit of money, but not much, you know. And uh, and so he just sort of took care of me, and we had a great time. And we laughed, and we'd made this show. But it was interesting, like, the language barrier actually helped, I think, in the process of it, because they would, they would just improv a scene, and then they would talk about it, and then they'd have to explain it to me in English, and and through explaining it to me, that really helped. But also, they were also grooming it as a bilingual show. They were going to be doing it in English and and French, mm-hmm. and there were subtitles that were projections like the old slide projectors uh, that I worked on with quite a bit, uh, you know, on the English ones I worked on. Uh, because I was the only native English speaker. So I, I, uh, I, know, I helped him learn how to speak English. Now I think he speaks English better than I do. Uh, but, I mean, he, he also had a brother and sister who spoke English, so whatever. So I can't take full credit for that. But I sure helped. But it was an amazing process. And in the end, when just like the week before we moved into the Katsu, into the theatre in Montreal, they realized that they were going to need somebody backstage. Uh, and they didn't have an asm plant at all and the show was I mean the set was just a seven foot tall 30 foot wide brick wall but there were all these props and all these effects and all this stuff and they were going to do it all themselves and in the rehearsal hall it was me I would help them out with all this different stuff and we'd just try things and here Steve can you hold this can you do this can you catch me when I fall backwards off the wall and blah 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 and so like they needed somebody to, to be backstage and learn the show like that and I was this person who was trying to stop being a a stage manager. (laughs) And they said, why don't you do it? And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to stage manage anymore. But okay. I mean, because it was was a full run, like a four-week run in Montreal. And hey, a paycheck. And then it was like a, a full run in Quebec City, a short run in Toronto as part of World Stage. And then it was going to London, England. And I'd never been overseas. I thought, okay, well. They're handing me like three months work Mm -hmm. and a trip to London. Okay, fine, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. Seven years later, I tried to quit that show so many times. Mm -hmm. uh, And I trained several people to take over my job. Mm -hmm. And they they just, they couldn't do it. It was the best physical shape I've ever been in in my life was doing that show. Because I never stopped running, you know. And I'm catching him and two other actors as they come over this wall. I was, you know, yeah. I'm curious as to it how so
0: LaPage works because I obviously never uh, worked with him. But does he have his own company that he uses all the time, or does he audition, or is it just a collaborative effort? Like, was this an unusual way of producing his shows? and it
1: seems like no. For that time, it was uh, what I can speak pretty clearly about how he used to work. How he works now is a whole other thing altogether. The guy's on a different planet from the rest of. You know, humankind now, and and I was fortunate to be there just as I was taking off. Like, uh, we were the third hit of his. He had toured with Vinci, and then there was the Dragon's Trilogy, and then there was us that was touring a lot. Tectonic plates had happened, but it only went to a couple of places. It was too big a cast. It was too unwieldy. It was all pianos. and So it didn't travel like we had. But most of the places we went on tour were places that he'd already toured. There was only a few places we went it he'd never been. Uh, and, uh, and it was fascinating to be a part of it. Now, of course, he's been everywhere. But he, the company that we created Polygraph with started out with two people who'd been in Dragons Trilogy and had worked with him many times. Pierre-Philippe and, uh, and, and Marie Broussard. And uh, so, yes, there was like a company of people that he drew upon. And they were a part, a big part of the um, that same company w- was a big part of the, uh, oh, what was the other show? The, uh, uh, the River Ota, Seven Streams of the River Ota. So there was a lot of repeats over the years of, of actors, but, I mean, now he can work with anybody, of course.
0: All right, uh, do you think that lepage's uh success is a result I uh, mean you know, he obviously his own individual creativity uh, mm. is the monumental part, but he also grew up or worked in an environment that had very heavy commitment to funding the arts and a mm. probably a community that had I think the communities seem to be different. They seem to be willing to sit through things that are riskier and different in Quebec than in English Canada. Uh, do you think that it's possible to have a Lapage in English Canada? Is there an equivalent to Lapage in English Canada? No,
1: there's. No, there's just not no yeah no the I, I think the answer to that is no, absolutely not. And his uh like he's an ambassador for Quebec. Yeah. I think part of the reason i like, I remember realizing that as a director, the thing he's better at than anybody is, is the transitions between scenes. You know, it's not so much about the scenes and the meat of the scenes. It's how you get from scene one to scene two is where he's like, how the hell did you come up with that? You know, it will be like his own little, excuse me, like its own little show in between the scenes. And, and I'll never forget that, watching that come together on Polygraph and watching that on other shows. I remember when I, when I went to go see Bluebeard's Castle and Of Our Tongue, Of Our Tongue, is a show with, I think, three performers Mm -hmm. sat on a giant wall. And I sat there going, we tried every one of these things in polygraph. Mm -hmm. Every single, in that rehearsal hall, I've seen that before, I've seen that before, I've seen that before, but there were things that they weren't physically able to do. Now he had dancers who could stand on the side of a wall. It's like, he must have been like a kid in a candy store. It's like, this is so great, you know? I recognize Almost all of this, you know, and one or two things was like, whoa, whoa, we never tried that. But uh, he finally had dancers who can actually do it. But I think his one of his biggest talents is that he he is so much fun to be around that people like inviting him to these festivals. Like he is literally the most interesting man in the world. It's not that actor from the Dos Equis commercial. It's Robert. And if you've ever sat across from him at a dinner table, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He's just, he's like, he's magnetic, you know. He's really, he's got that thing mm-hmm. that everybody wants to, you know, invite to their festival, yeah. you know. That's
0: incredible. Yeah. Uh, and let's step back. I want to talk about the DNA. We, didn't, we sort of glossed over your, your work with DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you first meet Hiller LaToya, who was the sort
1: of creative mind behind DNA, and get involved with them? I was lent to him when I was on that Futures Grant with Sky. Uh, basically Sky did the first show I did in Toronto was called Theatre Life and I've got photographs from that with, him, uh, with Ellie Ray Hennessy and Graham Harley and, and uh, a few other people anyway uh, Alex Posh Golden I think was in that mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, and then he, we did a Rhubarb and I think there was like a four play series but basically Hillary was doing a show mm-hmm. and needed a stage manager and so Sky let me do DNA because mm-hmm. you know I. The Contract only you know, went longer than he had worked to for me to fulfill, so I think that's how I first worked with Ken as well. I think he basically just I was like a book in a library, I got lent out. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I worked with Hiller as as stage manager, you know, of a kind. Hiller is a unique individual, to say the least. Uh, and uh, it was actually, um, uh, I, I asked him if I could assist a direct. Hamlet when we when we were doing his Hamlet and he said, No, I need you to be a stage manager and then I that's when I went off and talked to Robert and and Robert said, Sure And so I, I never did Hamlet and we didn't talk for almost three years, Hiller and I because uh he felt that I'd left him in a lurch. It was a full six months uh before but he he actually didn't manage to find a stage manager and did the show without one. Um uh, and uh, yeah we didn't speak for years and years and I think it was finally out of need you know he you know that he came back to me but right. I I went when I went back to working with him it was more in a design capacity than in a stage management capacity because uh, I wasn't going to put myself through that again mm-hmm. you know he's uh, I like him a lot but he's uh, he's uh, he's he's unique Yeah, he's unique what's his process like because
0: I never had the um, opportunity to work with him either but is kind of the the amount of work that you have to do on a show with him was kind of notorious. Yeah,
1: we we, we developed something together actually uh, that we called a Symphony of Lights, which we did a few of, which was, which was an intense amount of fun to do and a completely different process than anything else I've ever done. Uh, and and that's where you you score what the lights are doing like much like you score a piece of music. So we would we would have these titles for the different type of lights. So we would have fire lights and water lights or whatever. You know, different and so there'd be a I've I've actually got some here I can show you. Um but that so goes down the side and then you would you would basically You do it graphically, you would do it, you chart it out. So like, I want this one to be on for this long and then go out and then it'll come on for this little, be like four little short things. And then there'll be a long one. And, And it would be completely independent of whatever the action was. It would have nothing to do with what was happening on stage. And that was so much fun because you get this really interesting combinations where all of a sudden it would go like almost completely to black or go completely to black. And then like everything would come on and then everything would go off and then everything would come on and then like one little light and then like this one going So, but they were a lot of fun to draw, you know. That reminds me, uh, um,
0: one of the... Um... Uh, we were talking about In One, the podcast out of New York by Corey Paddock, uh, which I'll plug again. You should go listen to that, everyone. Um, they were talking about uh, Theron Musser and mm-hmm. her work with, uh, oh, the ballet company. I can't remember. And they were doing very much the same work where they would do, uh, they would they would set up random um oh no she passed it on to another designer oh which I'll find out about later I mentioned in the show notes um, where they would do a random series of cues that were really like blackouts left side of the stage right side of the stage in all these different looks that would run over top of the ballet mm. which is a, it was a, I think a modern dance piece actually and it would change every city and so the dancers would dance their awesome. bit and then the lighting would do something completely different and every show was different and it was exactly that thing where they were trying to find the synthesis and you'd have these magical moments that would just appear out of that's nowhere it. That's that were, it. That were just for that specific you know, yeah.
1: performance. And that's DNA. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's DNA in a nutshell. Like you, The music could be doing one thing. The lights would be doing another thing. And each individual performer would be doing something different as well. They all have their own track. And so like sometimes people would end up... Uh, it, it, <laughs> When we did the show in Estonia, there was a goose on stage as well. So the goose would do whatever a goose is going to do. Uh, but uh, but we all, sometimes we had balloons in the show uh, that you would fill up with helium on the first day of the load-in and then just leave them. And then bit by bit, it would start to drift down. And there was one moment in one show, I can't remember what show it was, where he had an actor crossing the stage and a balloon came. I'm talking with my hands here. I hope everybody can appreciate that. And the balloon came right in front of the actor's face. And so he had to stop and wait. And it was like a Magritte painting for a minute, and then and then the balloon just sort of drifted off to the side, and he was able to continue, and like and that affects all the next group of interchanges, right? Because suddenly you have an actor who's going slower than he's ever gone before, so he's out of step with everybody else, and you get you get a brand new show every night, you know. Uh,
0: and what was the philosophy behind that? Was it was the was the storytelling still linear, or was it no no. So <laughs> linear silly rabbit Take your linear linear go home
1: uh, I mean there was there was linear shows like uh Ultimate Night was a linear show um uh uh uh, uh, uh nope that's the only one no I'm kidding um um uh, what was the one um The Last Supper that that was about as linear as it gets and that might have been the one I mean Hiller would have been much more he was much more appreciated in Quebec as you Pointed out earlier, I think he would have done really well in Europe. He never got there. So the shows were ever were, were always so huge and unwieldy that it would have been so expensive to travel with everybody. And just the way that you know we would transform spaces was huge. The Last Supper was a three hander, uh, you know, for a small audience, and it would have done really well in the festival circuit. But Ken died and that was that and the idea of doing it with somebody else was just never a possibility you know
0: I think the only uh, thing that I've always ever bumped into that Hitler was responsible for were the house lights at the Passmore Backspace when I did a <laughs> when I did the uh, Bunch Young Artists Festival with Theatre Direct the first time where we kind of really like Hung tons of gear in that space. I remember someone telling me, "Oh yeah." I said, "Why the?" I mean, we have got all this gear. Why are these house lights like this little R forty bulb and a string that's hanging? Oh, those are there because those El you know, hung those for something, and we don't have any other house lights. So that's kind of what we've been left for. So well, that was a while ago, to. I know that was a long time ago. Um, so that, I think they're. Uh, I can't imagine they're still there, but they might be. I don't think so. some sort of temporary installation for the house lights. All right, well, let's talk about uh, another a mentor that we haven't really, we've touched on, but uh, we haven't really spoken a lot about, which is Stefan Droke. <laughs> How did you first meet Stefan? I imagine it was with the Sky Gilbert
1: connection, no, it, right? It was through Ken, I believe. It was uh, through Steel Kiss. He was the designer on Steel Kiss, uh, and which I, was, I stage managed the first time, production managed the second time, uh, and worked with him, uh, we did several shows where I was doing the set and he was lighting or vice versa. So we worked together a lot, but I learned um, it was from him that I learned model making uh, and that I mean, any model making skill I have I, is directly uh, attributed to, attributed, attributed to Stefan uh, and just his exacting level of detail and, and just, uh, yeah, like how to hold a knife how to measure it out, how to, you know, never trust that the, uh, the, map board has a right angle, you know, you know, just little things like that. I learned model making from him. Uh, and he, uh, he was at Pass Mirai when I first got to Pass Mirai and, uh, and he taught me that building basically. Uh, that's,
0: and full stop. Holy segue. <laughs> that's good. Moving on. Yeah. yeah so, uh, uh, I was going to say that right the, steam, uh, the, steam. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to shut down now. Um, no, the, uh, that seems to be, uh, it, cause Plaxton trained drogue. Right? That's
1: my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: it's Plaxton drogue to use your, so that's good. That's a pretty good company you keep, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as far as your, um, uh, your pedigree. <laughs> so when you show your papers, you can have, Oh, I'm a Plaxton, I'm Plaxton drogue. Um, did you ever adopt the, uh, RGB lighting? thing that Plaxton taught Drogue that Drogue loves to use, or did you even know about that? No, you're looking at me like a dumbfounded what, face. It's
1: funny that you say that, because I've been using that a lot, but I didn't... Now, explain to me what you mean. Give me the short so, version.
0: Uh, so my my understanding from, from Stefan was that uh, Jim Plaxton um, was very fond of RGB color mixing mm-hmm. in the backlight, and um, Stefan picked that up from him uh, as a great way to color mix um, and when you, when you do it properly in that you really have to know how colors uh, you really have to know how colors mix it can't be too close obviously because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get these like rainbows of light on the floor but um, anyways that was his he, Stefan always attributed that to his training
1: with Plaxton so I thought that if he uses it a lot maybe you would pick that up you know what? from him it's funny because I do use that a lot uh, and that may have come from him and I just didn't realize it that's interesting that you say that
0: Well, it's not uncommon. I mean, I used it when I was in when I was in high school. I used it because I'm, you know, special.
1: No, it seems like an
0: obvious thing to do once you start learning about color mixing, but to use it really well, I think, and to make it look like it's not RGB, I I use it. Take some skill, I, I think. I
1: use it a lot to cover my ass, basically, because it can give you virtually, in theory, you know, mathematics says you can get any color in the world out of it. It's not actually true, you know, but you can get a whole range and. I remember I used it um, as like a like a high, like a high front light on um, uh, to kink in her hair when I took that to London, but I added in the amber as well, so I had like that one twenty one, one twenty two, one 121, one, one twenty two, one yeah, that's it, uh, and and discovered that I actually didn't need the amber. You know, I'd never believed that I wouldn't need it, but in fact, the red and the green does give you the amber. It actually, you know. I got to see that on a large scale. Uh, but I did that because I knew that, you know, I had all these musical numbers in no time and I was going to have to, like, put it together really fast and I wanted options. Uh, but I use it a lot. I, we, we do it at, at uh, Theatre Orangeville now, where I've been working for the last several years. We, we got rid of the scrollers in that little space because they're such a pain. They're so noisy. And I hate them. I just hate them. Um, and instead, we just hung six park ends and we got the 121. 122 120 21 122 whatever it is uh, and and I and I usually add those last when I'm doing a lighting design there uh, like I'll light the whole show and I when you do your lighting levels and it's not till the cue to cue that I'll start like bumping in the cools or bumping in the warms over top of it and it's like this little it's like putting icing on a cake it's a nice it's and it's quiet and it's easy and yeah yeah okie dokie that's uh, funny
0: I know it's weird. It's a weird connection. Well, it's maybe it's a maybe it's something that um, once you learn how to manipulate light, it's something you find easy to use. I think it's easy to get go down that road and be and uh, and not find the subtlety hmm. in it and go just give me the pink. <laughs> Everything's pink all of a sudden, or all the blues at full. Um, but uh, so tell me about the connection to the past. Mirai and mm-hmm. Stefan Drog did he bring you into past How did you get? Because you took on a residency. Um, there and tell me about first of all tell me about the residency program at past and what the history of that is and then how you found yourself uh, doing residency there I don't
1: know that it's a program per se it's just uh, like plaxton basically designed that building uh, and uh, I liked on the on the on the podcast he told the story about how he regrets taking the floor out because mm-hmm. uh, that I remember him saying that to me Uh, and I've only seen him once or twice in my whole career. You know, I've only met him once or twice. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've heard that story, you know, several times, that he wishes he hadn't taken that floor Me, I'm grateful he did. I love that room. I've always loved that room. My first experience there was with uh, DNA when we did uh, This is What Happens in Orangeville in the Backspace. Mm -hmm. And I'd been working with Stefan, and Stefan was resident there at the time. Uh, I think somebody hired me to, like, Reglaze a floor in the main space. It was the first thing I ever did in the main space because I was going to be in the building anyway. So they gave me the keys and they gave me the glaze, and then you know, I went, you know, at one in the morning and painted the floor by myself in that room. And I've always loved that room. Uh, and uh, in the Susan Saran years, uh, they they actually asked me to to come on as resident um, to just to oversee. All the shows and make them all work together and I, I don't think I fully appreciated what that was and I said no to it and in the end I ended up doing every show anyway uh, but I actually turned down the residency but did one effectively so because I think I was touring with uh, with Polygraph at the time and I knew I was going to be away and those tours were often like five, six weeks at a time uh, but I think I did every show but one that year anyway and when Lane came back he brought Stefan back in to do all the sets uh, for, I think Stefan did a year of doing all the sets and lights. And then in the second year, he did the sets and I did the lights. And then in the, the third year, Stefan moved on and I took over and we put the pros in. Uh, and, and I took it really seriously and, and I learned, I, you know, this is the only way I've ever learned is from my mistakes. But the residency there was, was a real pleasure because you get to know the room, you get to know, the the gear and everything that's in the space. Remember the first show we did there. I, I had an assistant at the time uh, was Trevor Schwellness, mm-hmm. who was on that Theater Ontario grant. He uh, I got him to go around the whole building and find every single riser, all of them, and and do a full inventory of the all the risers, the four by eights, all the weird little stock like the the weird shapes, the curves. And we, we and measure them all and draw them all and make models of them all. Mm-hmm. So And then we sat down and we designed a show like with Lego blocks, right. with risers that we already had. Because mm-hmm. there was very little money for the sets at that time, and it's probably still the case.
0: What Sorry, what year was this?
1: I'm bad with that part.
0: It's probably 93, 96, 90...
1: Oh, yeah, that's it for sure. One of those. I, I don't know. I honestly... No, ninety seven, ninety eight, because yeah. it was before. I remember the the first breath was ninety nine, so that's a bit of a yardstick. And it was before that. It was just before that, so maybe ninety seven, ninety eight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the first residency there, I think, was ninety or ninety one, or maybe that season, ninety ninety one,
0: and uh,
1: and yeah, we built and we we built a whole set out of all these weird shaped risers, and then we threw them all out. You know, it's like one last show for them and then get them the hell out of the building. And that's back when we like cleared out the shop and the shop party started ha- started happening. It was all in that same era just because we managed to find it's like, hey, look, there's a whole room back here. Cool. You know, like we just got rid of all the crap that had been accumulating for 30 years and uh, and just got down to uh, got down to the basics. But also just learned how to like, you know, building a building. house plot in a way I did that in that second year with Stefan where I found all these curved steel pipes and I was like what show are these from you know what it doesn't matter but let's let's add one of these and hang five lights on it you know so I had all those big uh, 20 and 30 40 degree color trends on them and let's leave them up for the next show and then we added another one and we had suddenly we had 10 lights that we didn't have to move because that grid is what used to be a death trap right? right so I was like let's try and Go up there as little as possible. Yeah,
0: this is before they put now. There's a catwalk that runs along and and goes goes upstage, downstage, and right left. But before it was yeah. just a grid.
1: It, well, it wasn't that even was a it? grid. It was it was a it was a sort of a series of pipes that had, um, like like the the what do you call them from catwalk uh, from uh, scaffolding like the what do you call this oh, like uh,
0: platform decks like yeah like a platform decks. from yeah. scaffolding yeah,
1: They just had like angle iron that came down. They weren't even attached to the pipes. They just sat on it. So you could actually like hold yourself up on the guy wires that was all holding it up and shift it over with your feet. And that, like the fact that nobody ever fell out of there is a miracle yeah. to me, a miracle. And with the old uh, paralyp Spheres, mm-hmm. I remember somebody holding, uh, I think it was Steve Marsh because he was like the smallest person on the crew uh, it, holding him by his legs as he like was running the barrel on a parallel sphere. Cause they were like three feet long.
0: These are the zooms. Yeah. Yeah. The zooms are huge. Yeah. I
1: yeah. remember we got a call from Heavy. the theater museum asking for one. It's like, no, these are our best lights. You know, you can't have them.
0: They certainly serviced. I mean, I'm going to, I got in contact at CITT about a year ago uh, with one of the, um, one of the guys from great interface uh, they're called something now. Different. They're a different company, um, but they have connections. One of the one of the people who works in the in the executive there is one of the guys who work used to work for EC, and has the whole history of electric controls and how it all developed. Those lamps they went into service in the late seventies, and they were still the best lamps to use yeah. right up until the end of the 90s until a source force kind of took over. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they're a 1K lamp and they're punchy Yeah. and they would just, even the zooms yeah. were great. Nice and even. Oh, my yeah. God. Beautiful yeah. field. The field was very, very, yeah. no, none of this cosine. You can make it cosine, but it was very, very flat. It was yeah. awesome. And they would fuzz out. I remember when I was, I'm just going to do a little digression here. Um, the reason I have such a love affair with them is because at the center of the square where I trained when I was a kid, they had, this is it was built in the late '70s and spec and the the entire rig was EC, right? And they had a they had a front of house with the eight inch zooms. Have you ever seen these things? Mm-hmm. They're like the big cannons. Uh, and they had a first front of house with all those eight inch zooms, and they had a second front uh, um, uh, sort of sorry, the second front of house was all eight inch zooms. The first front of house was all fixed focus, uh, twenty degrees or six by twenties. And uh, you didn't use you didn't have to use um, R nineteen or R fourteen, yeah, because they would they would the the edge you can make soft perfectly
1: i remember uh, i used to think that frost was cheating
0: yes exactly because <laughs> of those lamps yeah. yeah 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 and then you go use a strand six by nine and go oh just put some damn just frost. put some one, in yeah that place.
1: <laughs> yeah now i put frost in you know everything that i don't want sharp and even some that i do you know i, I remember when 132 came along oh, it was like
0: it was <gasps> a miracle I remember oh that god. was in the late 90s oh my god
1: 32 yeah
0: okay so uh you're a past mirai mm-hmm And you're saying you're you're finishing up your residency there. Anything else? Did you guys the pros was I remember the the pros being an important aspect.
1: I was in every show that year, right? Yeah, for a couple of years. And we and we got and that's part of what the beauty of the residency was. We had this plan. Lane had this dream of like let's put in a pros. So because addressing that space takes up so much of your time and money and resources, just to because it's such a huge room just to that, describe
0: it for people who haven't been at Pass Mariah it's imagine a two floor building with the center but uh, the middle floor cut out in, in like a, a horseshoe or in a uh, cruciform like a, in a cruciform that's yeah. right
1: there's there's a Stefan word for yeah, it there Stefanism. stephenism a go. Oh, cruciform
0: yeah uh yeah and you've got the uh, over the stage you have a second level uh in the back yeah in the back and it uh, down right down left it kind of juts out right? That's right so you so many people are are tempted to stage stuff underneath that area because it's all this room and then you At try to light parent. it on and go oh my god how the yeah. hell can I light that yep. um so yeah so masking that is a, always a problem because there's so much space to mask yeah uh so the pros seems like an easy
1: it was a good fix and, and what it did was it it was it made it made all the shows smaller like it, it it focused it was all about focusing but the cool thing was is that from that first show with those risers that uh, was that we, we started building the stage, and every show we would add to the stage. And that stage is still there. That's still the stage that's still there almost 15 years later. That's
0: right, because it was on the floor. It was not a raised stage before, was it?
1: You no, know, people would put in the first, the, the first residency I did there. We moved where the stage was and moved the audience for every single show uh, because I thought it was cool, you know, and because directors would get excited by that. And it took me a while before I realized that audiences had no idea and couldn't care what direction they were facing in. They're looking at the stage and at the show. It's one of those things that you learn the hard way, right? Uh, and, and, and people didn't have a clue. Like when we did Sleep Room there, uh, do, you know about, do you know about Sleep Room? Sleep Room was the biggest thing I did before Peep Show and it, uh, because it was in the main space and the back space and the men's washroom. It was everywhere. And we walled in that whole cruciform on the second floor was all walled in, literally. So it created spaces going around the outside. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the end of the show that you actually went into the main space proper. No, that's not true. The show started you in there, but it was like this big grand entrance hall. Mm -hmm. And then you left. And while you were in the other places, we did a full set change in there. Mm -hmm. It flew in all these beds, like from the movie Coma, Mm -hmm. you know, so like there were bodies floating 18 20 feet off the ground and then another uh, set on the on the on the ground that actually had humans there were dummies in the air and humans on the ground so when you came back into that space it was like a whole other room and we we completely confused people who had been working there and coming there for years and years because we built we did it all with drywall too on the main floor it was all the drywall because it was so much cheaper than buying You know building flats we used every flat in the building and every flat we could borrow to do the cruciform on the second floor Mm -hmm. but the first floor is all drywall so it was real like it was very confusing for people they were like where am i you know Mm -hmm. like they had no idea yeah it was very cool but it it almost killed us and you know it was just you know yeah these shows where people get very ambitious in their brains so that's going into peep show i had had the experience of sleep room you know under my belt and after peep show i did a show in montreal that i only lit i came in doing your role uh called mtl 2000 which was another one that was like you people are all insane and you know like and you can tell them but they don't find out until you know the week before opening that they've bitten off way more than they can chew.
0: That's always the crunch time. Yeah. Um, Great. So let's talk about... uh, So coming out of the Passamurai residency, you did the first Breathe. But before, in that period of time at the end of the 90s, we're going to talk to Breathe uh, about Breathe at the end because you're doing a remount of it. Um, Let's talk about... Not a remount... There's that's no a new such production. I'm sorry. A, no, no,
1: you man. know what? If Two Pianos has taught me everything, yeah. anything, yeah. everything, anything, it's, they're literally, and I think this is a Stefan quote, there's no such thing as a remount. There's not. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Even, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm adamant about that. That's you know, good. No,
0: that's yeah. good. Well, let's, let's segue into Two Pianos, Four Hands. Okay. Um, which I think if anything is a hit, 2PMS
1: mm-hmm. 4Hands defines what a hit is, right? Yeah. When, yeah. You first did this in what year, 96? Uh, it's 20 years. This year is the 20, 20th anniversary. So in 95, it was first done yeah. at Tarragon. At Tarragon, yeah, yeah. I think I saw that It production. was the year before at the Spring Arts Fair, which, you know, just as a little workshop thing that just went, people went bananas for. Uh, and then we, we did it as part of the main stage.
0: So tell us about the show, first of all. Starring and written by...
1: Richard Greenblatt and Ted Dykstra. Right.
0: Two greats in Canadian theater. Yeah. Even, uh, despite that show, like if that show never occurred, yeah. these are probably two big figures, directors, actors in the yeah, Canadian for sure. theater. Yeah. Uh, it came out of the Spring Arts Fair. Tell us about the show then. How did that
1: uh, develop? Uh, it, it came out of the two of them used to talk about the idea of, you know, doing a show together. And then somebody, I think Andy McKim, finally said, just, you know, here's a couple of dollars, sit down and shut up and write the damn play. Uh, and they did, uh, and uh, and it, I mean, there's so many famous two piano stories, but like, before we even opened it the first time, they wrote a fax, and just faxed out, going, hey, we're doing this show, we open in a few weeks, does anybody want this for their season, and the next day, they had faxes back from every major th- theater in Canada, going, yes, we'll take it, yes, we'll take it, yes, we'll take it, mm-hmm. so we had a full tour, and a and, and a remount at, at Tarragon booked before we even opened that show. Like, so it was a hit right from day one, yeah.
0: Uh, and the show consists basically of Ted and Richard with yeah. facing nested grand baby grand pianos? Full Not grand
1: nested, pianos. yeah, yeah, full grand
0: pianos. But toward, sort of? Turn towards each other. So yeah. the keyboard's upstage, downstage. That's right. And Ted is on stage left and Richard's on stage right. That's correct. Oh, see, I haven't seen the show in 20 years. And
1: they go through what it's like to to learn. It's, it's about learning to play the piano. It's right. it's it's like it's about learning to play anything. There's a famous story that gets brought up at every single interview. that, uh, And it was actually Andrew Ackman who, who introduced me to Richard, uh, who told him, you know what? This play's about tennis for me. And, and Richard mentions it in every single interview. It's like a running joke now, uh, but it's true. In that it's about it's about getting good at anything. Anything that you have to practice and dedicate yourself to. Uh, and it's about it's about people's relationship with the instruments, about people's relationship with their parents. And it's funny now, twenty years later, when I first did it, it I, I always identified with the kids. Now I identify with the parents. You know. It's
0: yeah. And that's part of its success, right? It's such a universal play for Absolutely. People, right? Right. And done in such an expert fashion yeah. that you really can't dig into the story. You're not concerned about any kind of slip ups or amateur like they're not they're not overstretching. These two guys fit in this play mm. so well. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and like even to audition for that play, you have to have, like, grade 12 piano. Like, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to be accomplished, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to even start, Yeah, you know.
0: Exactly. Uh, now, okay, so tell me about the, what it was like to have a hit, because this is something that has been redone and redone and redone and redone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, uh, Richard and, and, uh, and Ted have not been in every production. Have you done every...
1: I've done more than anybody. Yeah, yeah. they actually, the the producer, Cullen Rivers, actually keeps track of this. I actually have real stats on this. Okay. Uh, Ted and Richard performed in, I think, 24% of, of all productions there's ever been of it. Yeah. I've done just less than 70. Mm-hmm. So I'm head and shoulders you know, ahead of everybody else in the percentage game in terms of that. Right. Yeah. And it's a pretty simple set, right? Well, there's been, I've designed 13 sets for it. Uh, uh, And it started off, Uh, it was just spandex and red, uh, like full velvet, Uh, was the first on key clamp. And we literally, David Hookster was the production manager, and we, we literally FedExed the set from theater to theater for that first Canadian tour, literally. It was like, he did the math and it's like, you know, if we make this smart, we can just... FedEx, this whole damn thing, except for the pianos. The pianos move with piano movers, and we took the same pianos everywhere, right across Canada. Fred and Barney, so we got them for free from Yamaha. Yeah. Oh, that's
0: why. So oh, yeah. you have to rent them. Uh, obviously, you'd have a tuner. Did a tuner go with them, or did you? Have no, local? get a
1: tuner. That was part of the deal. Was that was that Yamaha would spec the would spec the piano movers, and that and that they would have to approve the tuner in every city. But we got free pianos for the whole year. I think. I think we've always had free pianos. Like It's been very, very rare that they've spent a penny on pianos because it's like a commercial for pianos. Mm-hmm. And the relationship with Yamaha has been so strong over the years. We broke one string when we were in Regina, oh. and they sent out a full set. It's the only time I think we've ever broken a string. Wow. Uh, I think they broke one in California just recently, but I wasn't there at the time.
0: Now, the, um, it is... If, if you were doing the production now, like if you were a um, I'm doing regional, it in a few weeks. Yeah. Well, let's say if you are a regional theater. Yeah. Uh, d- is it not... <laughs> I guess everyone sees you playing. Okay, you could probably use the Clavia, Synclavia system, couldn't you? The, the, I'm the, rolling my eyes. The, I, I know right you're now. rolling my eyes, but, but it, you know, it, it's amazed me that no one's ever...
1: We had one of those on that. We had one of those at Tarragon, yeah. uh, and we had one. Yeah, I think ATP had one. There was a couple of them, and in uh, and they joked about like playing and because you can record it, yeah. and then and I think they actually were gonna play stuff and play it as like pre-show in the lobby, oh, okay. but it would have actually been them. I don't think they ever did, mm-hmm. but no, it, no, it's all about being good at something. It's you know, so that would be. That, that wouldn't make sense it's in the a, context an, the it's play. Anathema to the show. Anathema. Uh, Thank
0: you. I did a uh, I did a show called of uh, oh boy, the great duo of director and designer uh, who play the Tarragon all the time. Um, Morrison Ken? Morris Panage. I did Morris Panich play at uh, in Regina where we had Alan Moon and Patrick McManus were in it and Alan they both had to act and Alan Moon it was a musical and Alan Moon played a piano it was a live piano on stage right? and we had a Sinclair system because he had to act and do a bunch of other things while playing the piano for every song right. and so they had to record that he recorded bits on the piano that he didn't have to think about because he was right, propping or something doing some property business anyway so that's great so the so the same pianos traveled
1: across country yeah (laughs) that seems well and to this day when when we do it it's that's one of the hardest parts of the process is finding a matching pair of pianos it takes months for them to do that, because they have to match. They have they they have to match, uh, and they and they they have to be the same size. They have to be the same make. In the last time we did it in Japan, we we actually had we had two Yamahas that were the same size, but one was your standard C whatever it was. Yeah, like a, yeah. it was a, one of the twelve foot ones, so yeah. maybe a C nine. Yeah, the other one was a was also a C nine, but it was one of their uh, one of Yamaha's top mm. handmade, all handmade. Mm. It's like the Rolls Royce of Yamaha pianos. It was worth like a quarter of a million dollars, mm-hmm. the one piano, and the other one was only worth like, you know, whatever. 25, 250, 30, whatever. But yeah, but they had to like match them. The tuners had to match them, and they were able to do that. But.
0: Wow, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, what was it like to have a hit? Because this, like, you know, it was a hit before they even went mm-hmm. up. And it's toured everywhere yeah now do you uh, is it the same
1: design that goes everywhere? Yeah yeah we, we now have a small medium and a large set, okay. literally, and we match them up to the different uh, spaces mm-hmm. uh, and that's again producer Colin, you know he, he, it's like moving pieces around on a chessboard mm-hmm. so the medium one is going to Neptune now. the large one is going to the Grand in London mm-hmm. so yeah so we have three different sizes. Yeah. so
0: did you have to negotiate just to get into the business side of things did you have to negotiate? Uh, a different contract, like you were a hired, you were the first designer, mm-hmm. right? Um, when you, I mean, are you an ADC member? I used to be an ADC member. Okay. I'm no longer an ADC
1: member. We should talk about that in a second. But before sure. we get there, uh, did you have a standard ADC contract? Uh, it was on two pianos that I got an agent. Uh, oh. That uh, when, when the Mervishes were sniffing around and Latimer Follows were, were like taking the boys out for dinner and, New York, Ben Sprecher from New York was suddenly there. I, like, I called Christopher Banks and said, Chris, help me. And he said, that's so funny. I saw the show last night. I was going to call you today. And I said, good. Can we get together? Because uh, I did a show uh, called Poor Superman. And I remember uh, that went... It was a co-pro between MTC and Cannes Stage.
0: And that's a Brad Fraser play. Yeah,
1: yeah. And a million years ago now. And I remember negotiating the contract for that. And I had a... a, I've always hated that. Like, I hate the money side of this business. I hate it, hate it, hate it. So when when all these big-time producers were sniffing around, it's like, I'm out of my depth here. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I need help. So I went to Chris, uh, who's now... Magically transformed Like a butterfly Into Ian
0: Yes <laughs> right. yes. I'm going to be Interviewing him For the podcast oh, Chris Banks I think In the probably Hopefully in the next oh, few Oh Chris weeks. Yeah. Oh good Not Ian Not uh, Maybe we'll have Ian and Chris On the show No I talked to Ian On Monday That would be fun Actually That Oh that would be Interesting to do That would be fun both. Maybe do an hour With Chris And then bring Ian In for the last hour To like talk about Like you have Three mics What's the problem Anyway it would be fun <sighs> It's about focus It's about focus Cause Ian's just going to sit there and well, maybe he should be anyways. Um, so, so <laughs> now I sidetracked the entire conversation. Um, and you found, and obviously Chris did you well, like that was something that you yeah. immediately be, took him on board and he yeah. negotiated all your contracts. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Almost all. Uh, he doesn't handle, uh, absolutely everything, which is great. Uh, uh, the, um, still union shows, uh, don't go through my agent for instance, because I think uh, they're afraid of him. Um, uh, they were always intimidated by him. And they're also like, you know, we're talking minuscule budget, so it's not like he's losing out on anything. But I mean, and, and and Ian's always been great about that. You know, like, if you need me, I'm here. If you don't, you don't, you know. But like 98% of everything I do goes through him. Uh, just because it's so much easier, you know. Then at the end of the year, I get a little list of all the things I work on because I work on a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, of course. I'm a busy boy.
0: Did you... Um... When you got the uh, the contract for two pianos, was that did it give you any other kind of freedom to do anything that you wanted to do? Like, was there a monetary freedom that you enjoyed? Were you said, "I'm going to do that small show that I wouldn't have taken before, but now oh, I would." No, 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 no,
1: no, just, no. It's not. No, I <laughs> no no. Two pianos uh, is good. I mean, does it pay well? Yes. Does it pay? A lot absolutely not i'm not making a cut of the box office you know i'm not one of the writers i wish i was <laughs> believe you me i wish i was getting a percentage of that but i'm not you know so the thing that it gives me is 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 a show that i know how to do very very well mm-hmm. that i get to do very very often mm-hmm. that's all it's it's another show basically it's a good paying show sure. absolutely you know, and especially given the fact, but it's also funny because like, they, they like to have me there. They like me to be there. And and it's not like you go in like these, you know, these European tours I do, you go in, you load in on Monday, you're open on Tuesday or Wednesday mm-hmm. Two pianos. It takes time, you know, because the pianos themselves need to get used to the room, need to get, you know, and, and even now, like it still takes a day to tech that show. You know, so it's, it's always a full production period, you know? So I'm often gone for like five to 10 days to do two pianos still after all this time, you know,
0: um, let's talk about what it's like to work outside the country because you've done a lot of work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about Japan. First of all, is what I'm really interested in. Europe is, seems intuitively. I had a chat with Bonnie Beecher, which will be coming out before this podcast goes out, I think. (laughs) And she talks about Germany and working in that kind of field, but let's talk about Japan. Um, when did you first go to Japan? Uh, with Robert, with Polygraph. was the first time. Wow. And what year was that? <sighs> Why do you keep asking me what year? Man? It's important. This is history, my uh,
1: friend. Dates uh, are important. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I really, I honestly don't. Uh, and it, the funny thing about going to Japan the first time was we weren't actually doing the show. Uh, the show had uh, had closed at like for at least a year, maybe two years at that point. But a Japanese company wanted to do a production and they bought our set and all of the props wow. and and brought Robert down just to do interviews and to be Robert. Uh, they brought Marie, who was the actress in it, down to direct the Japanese production. Mm-hmm. They brought the lighting designer down and they brought me down. I don't think they brought the musician. No, they didn't bring the musician. Uh, no, Pierre didn't come. So it was Eric Folk and I and Marie and Robert. We went to teach them how to do the show. Mm-hmm. And I had... I was replaced by three people. Well, I did myself. Right. Suddenly became three people. And it was, I mean, it sounds like a joke uh, now, but it's true. There was there was one moment when I was answering all these questions, and they're so organized, and there's so many of them, and they're, like, always making little notes. Uh, but, and we're, like, we're walking around backstage, and I put my coffee cup on the props table to answer a question about the set, and when I turned around again, it had a little square of tape around it and a little label in Japanese. Like I, I shit you not, <laughs> That's that actually happened. It was like you can't make this stuff up. You know, I wish I had Instagram back in those days because I would have taken that picture like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sorry, That's a, sorry for snapping. No, 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 but, you can snap. That's but okay. it
1: was like it, it was, yeah, it was. It's like every cliche you've ever heard uh, come true. Like the the level of professionalism the level and like when i made a mistake like when we take when we took two pianos there the first time we somehow on the plot on this huge like this the, the the theater was the biggest stage i've ever worked in that was the first time we went there it was just gigantic and we somehow on the plot put the the set in front of the backlights and never even noticed that just we switched it was on the wrong line set and no one noticed and they hung it and they put the wall up and then they come to me so apologetic. Like, we're so sorry. We're so sorry, but we think there might be some sort of a problem and we would just like to apologize. And we're like, what are you talking about? And they take me up on stage and went, are these lights supposed to be there? And I was like, oh my God, no, they should be on that one. They show me that paper. It's like, how did we do that? How did we make that mistake? You know, but we had, you know, my assistant and I, we made this colossal mistake they apologized so many times for it, for hanging it in the wrong place. I went, no, 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 this is me. This is entirely my fault. I have a, I did a time, I was doing a time lapse uh, of the setup there and the time to rehang that entire line set of lights was maybe two minutes. No. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You'll have a hang there with 30 people. I tried to count. I couldn't do it. They're all dressed in black, right? None of them are talking. They've all got like a little mini- Version of the plot and it's silent. And I'm like, how many people are on this crew? And I was like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. No, you moved. One, two, three. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm like, one, two. Th-? There must have been 25, 25 to 30 people on the lighting hang. It's like, like, yeah, unbelievable. Like a colony of ants. Like that's a level of organization. Just like they both came in, it was like, <laughs> back out again. Wow. It's like, and what about labor?
0: Uh, you obviously had translation translators.
1: Yeah, we had a translator, uh, and there was a lighting director. So, and when we were at the at the lighting board, and there were two, there was two lighting boards. There was one for all the because we had moving lights. It was back when projections were still uh, too expensive to use. So instead, we had all these. You know, Mac, whatever they were, uh, moving lights with all these custom-made gobo's in it doing the projections, which now is just like ridiculous to think about doing. But anyway, so we had a moving light desk and a regular desk, mm-hmm. and that, all that communication went to um, the lighting director. He did the focus. Yeah. I told him what I needed. He told the crew. So there was a line director, there was a translator, and there was me. And over the course of the the week. It was very funny. It would happen over and over again where I'd be saying something to the translator and he'd be nodding before she even turned to him you know, to tell him, he'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally got that. And it would happen the other way around too. Uh, And at one point he leaned over to her and said something and she said, you're both speaking the same language. He said to tell you that you're both speaking the same language, you're just using different words. I thought, that's so beautiful and so true. And by the end of that production, we were totally on the same page mm-hmm. to the point that this year, or sorry, the last time I went back to Japan to do two pianos again, he I had the same translator and the same lighting detect, uh, detector, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> director, the same guy. Yeah. Uh, and we were doing, sorry, we were doing uh, notes after a dress rehearsal mm-hmm. while she was off translating for the actors, mm-hmm. you know, and she would come back in and go, I'm so sorry you had to wait. And I said, no, we're done. She went, how did you do that? I said, we got it. We totally got it. You know, just pointing and talking with your hands and, you know, and I'm, I'm used to that. I've traveled enough that, that I can, I can, you know, run a crew in any language, you know, it's great. As long as they're willing.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. Uh, Anything else about Japan? I mean, you, um, the, the tech was, any differences in tech that you noticed
1: not really no I mean we did a line plot and paperwork and sent it off to them the same as you would do anywhere yeah. just uh, just on a bigger scale mm-hmm. uh, we we had a big argument about not argument a big discussion about the floor because the floor only needs to be black for the show but we were in a kabuki theater like this mm-hmm. so, very very old yeah. and it was this beautiful old wood yeah. and yeah. I thought oh well that'd be lovely you know we could just use that you know I don't necessarily need a f- black floor mm-hmm. But it changed um, as it went back. When, when there's a bit at the end of the show where the set flies out, we do this whole sunrise effect on the psych, which looked better there than it's ever looked anywhere else. But the floor changed color. It's like, okay, well, we should paint. They went, well, we don't really want to paint it because it's a you know six hundred year old whatever kabuki floor. We're going to cover it. Is that okay? I said, absolutely, that's okay. You know, that's great. They bought. Dance floor, new dance floor for two pianos, four hands, and covered this whole stage. Like the stage must have been 50 feet wide. It was probably 30, 40 feet deep. Brand- I've never seen brand new dance floor. They brought it out and they nailed it down. <laughs> they nailed it down. To do spikes, to, to orient where the pianos were, he went up with nails in the middle of it. Tack tack tack, and then got a string it's like you're joking that's crazy where's your calf tape (laughs) yeah they did tape it as well but on the edges like off left and right they nailed it down wow it's like
0: that's incredible (laughs) it's crazy okay um well that's terrific that's that's awesome to know here about uh, japan um and Two piano still goes on. Now, uh, I am curious, uh, the producer's name again is Colin Rivers. Rivers. It's Marquee Entertainment. It's Marquee, okay. And Rob and Colin, but Colin handles it mostly, yeah. And uh, they uh, they own exclusive rights to it? Mm-hmm. So yeah. whenever it's well, done, the producer, they do the production. The
1: right? producers are really, it's, it's Ted and Richard. It's like, they're total control freaks. So it's Talking Fingers, which is Ted and Richard. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, they're the writers, they're the directors, they're the producers. They're, you know, they're everything. So whatever what they say, what they want, they get. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, okay. and
1: it's and ended both both. I met Ted on that. I'd never met Ted before. Mm-hmm. Richard used to. Uh, I'd done two shows before that with Richard, and he sort of went back and forth between me and Glenn Davidson mm-hmm. in those days. And then I got two pianos, and I've never worked with them on anything else ever again. Right. It, that ended my 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 career design career with Richard, but started it with Ted, you know, who I still work to the state, you know, with Coal Mine now. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, uh, let's talk about Coal Mine just
0: for a second before we sure. get out to breathe cuz Coal Mine is one of the um It's it's one of the I think a new kind of uh, wave in theater where you're renting out non-traditional spaces and making theaters out of them. And yep. this storefront is one in Toronto. We've that we talked about people who listen to the audience um the disappearing audiences uh uh episode from the Title Block. We'll know about storefront from that. Uh, but uh, coal mine is the same thing. It's in the basement of what used to be Magic Oven, but that's moved, right? So it's yeah. a, it was a restaurant above, and, and below was a, basically a was probably a storeroom for this.
1: It's actually a little. Um, it's like a, It's got dance floor in it. It's like a little uh, event space, mm-hmm. but it's tiny, tiny, tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this. This red carpet. Everything in my house comes from shows. This is from. Uh, uh, oh, the, the motherfucker wears the hat. Yeah, 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 This is the stage. Yeah. So this is how big that stage was. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, that was a great show, by the way. Thank you. It was incredible to watch. Because there was basically two rows of seating yeah. along the perimeter of the thing. And then the yeah. middle is uh, Sergio Dezio, uh and Juan. Uh, uh, Juan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, I, five feet away, yeah. right? When we said it was like seeing the stones at the M.O. Combo. It's but, totally the same thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: As an, and it got some. It got nominated for several awards at the doors. Yeah,
1: yeah, know. and Sergio won for won a for yeah. that. Yeah. He was great. and He was yeah. awesome. It was I so experience. wanted a, a, a door nomination for the lighting design for that, just because it was only six practicals. Yeah,
0: it was. Yeah, it was a bunch of lamps and a it pendulum a light. Right, six practicals. How do you feel about that? Like, I feel like it, in uh, I went and saw something at the storefront that wasn't a storefront production. It was a rental, and. um it was a bunch of... It was lit by whatever the storefront has, which is a bunch of clip lights. Mm. And I felt like they were trying to do theatrical lighting with non-theatrical lighting, and then they failed. Mm. Um, I thought it was really just... I felt cheated as an audience member, because I thought oh, it was... Wow. I was well, because I was expecting either either don't worry about it and do in-situ lighting, mm-hmm. but you're using, no, you're using non-theatrical stuff to try to do a theatrical effect, and it's failing, and it's like it was like it was like someone didn't it was like it was unthought of right so they thought well, we have to see people oh let's use those lights that are up there and we'll be fine and didn't think about it as a design element right uh, and I felt cheated but whereas in the coal mine you guys made a specific there were obviously choices made mm-hmm. right and that I appreciated and understood and loved great like got over it like it was great great right? it's, it's gonna be non-traditional it's did you find bit... it dark no Okay, cool. I didn't, because you're in a small space, and you can light it with little bits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, No, quite appropriate. I was totally brought into the... I knew where they were. Yeah. uh, And every... Because the set didn't
1: change. That's right. Just the actor's configuration changed on it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and how they used it. Like, sometimes they pretended that the table wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And and as I said, it was only six lights, but it was in each location used the same combination of those six. Mm -hmm. And uh, originally, I was tried to get away with only using two in each of the three locations so that I'd never reuse them. And I quickly realized that that was going to be too dark. So for the most part, there was three, sometimes two, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four, but never the same combination twice for each location. And and yeah, I, I like rules. Like I like putting restrictions on a design because I find out of that will come, you know, out of limitation. Like Greenblatt always says that uh, a deadline is an artist best friend you know and i completely agree with that but in the same way i like going okay i'm only gonna like i did a show with diana leblanc and 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 the whole the whole set and all the costumes are all in muslin there was no color in any of it and i said do you want to just use white light And she went oh yeah let's do that i went great no gels frost that's it and at low levels it gets nice and warm higher levels it's you know nice and white and blah 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 and you can you can actually do some color mixing without the color and i love that it's like cool that's one whole thing i don't have to worry about you know (laughs) you know in a funny way it's less work but in others it's like okay now direction matters so much you know
0: Uh, okay let's touch let's touch on Stowe union yeah uh we do have to get to breathe, and I want to talk about that for about twenty minutes. So let's just talk, talk on, touch on Still Union. Uh, first of all, uh, this is Nadia Ross's
1: company. Yeah, out of Quebec, out of Wakefield, Quebec. Wakefield, Quebec. Tell me about your involvement with them and what you find. Um, uh, it came out of uh, uh, Nadia was in. She was an actor in several shows I did. Uh, she did something in the backspace. Uh, she, yeah, I, I, they'd invited me to do a show called Recent Experiences that I couldn't do probably because of Two Pianos. Mm-hmm. Uh, two Pianos has gotten in the way of lots of things. Um, but that's okay. I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually couldn't do it when it was in Toronto. Then she got uh, invited to do it in Montreal at the uh, Festival des mm-hmm. uh or now called the Festival Transamerique. Anyway, uh, and I've sort of become, and this it comes out of, goes all the way back to See Bob Run in a funny way, it's because I've toured so much with that show, with the Chet Baker show, with, with Robert. I'm sort of, I became Mr. Touring Guy. He's toured a lot. He knows what he's doing. So when they got invited to the, to the festival, she said, would you come and light it now? Because they had, I don't even know who lit it the first time, uh, but uh, you know, would you come in and do a new design for it? And I said, absolutely. Uh, and I've been working with her ever since. And that was 10 years ago now. So we did that show. We did Revolutions in Therapy and uh, Seven Important Things, and now we're doing a show called What Happened to the Seeker. And, and they're very low budget. They're very – they come from the heart. They're very real. And in Seven Important Things, we did uh, – and they've been very poorly received in Toronto uh, in, until Seven Important Things, which we did at SummerWorks a couple of years ago, and it did really, really well. And now we're doing Seeker. This is going to be a perfect transition into Breathe, because mm-hmm. because we're doing it, uh, and we have a two week residency at the uh, at the theater center, and she gave the first week to me because she didn't want to. She didn't need to run the show all that time. No one's going to come that many times, let's be honest. Uh, and it's a great show. And we just did that in Berlin. Uh, we've been to Berlin with almost every one of her shows. We took seven important things to Russia. So it's it's been a lot of fun.
0: It's incredible. In a period of time, in the conversation I had with Ronnie Burkett, the, um, he was having trouble touring internationally because the producers that book those international tours are because of austerity. Mm-hmm. and the economy in the last three or four years have really stopped booking international tours. Right. And because Canada doesn't... The, that support for international touring has, am I right, almost evaporated? Yes. Yeah. So uh, how has
1: Nadia and Still Union managed to continue to tour? By doing it on a very, very, very small scale. They literally, for Seeker, the the set uh, travels in their luggage there's only four of us. Like it's, it's all about keeping it simple. Uh, seven important things is the same thing. Like very little of it needs to be shipped. Literally the seeker, which is like, it's a, it's a total multimedia. There's, it takes place on the stage in the audience and in a different room in the, in the theater. Act one, you split the audience into three places and pieces, parts, three. Yeah. Groups, whatever. Oh my God, I can't talk anymore. It's been too long. Um, Uh, But one of them is a full uh, installation, like a full gallery of all these different pieces. Some of them motorized, uh, like all of them like handmade and like, uh, and they travel with all that in suitcases. Like it's incredible. And built that, like that whole company is founded on the knowledge that they're going to have no money to travel with. Right. So.
0: That's incredible. I mean, I'm I'm glad they're doing well. um, And they obviously represent Canada well. Yeah, they're okay. getting embedded back yep. in all these places. Well that's good to know. Yeah. Um but it's not the Lapage tour budget by any means. No. <laughs> no. No, of course not. All right. Well let's talk about Breathe. Okay. And then we'll this will I I've been talking about I want to talk about process. I, I did want to mention something though. It seems like Still Union and uh, has benefited from this. Your commitment to Making choices that are simple that tell the story in a way that's efficient, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's important for people who are going into theater, who are expecting like we've talked a lot about the big show. I've done a bunch of Shaw interviews this year, and so people have heard people talking about these giant shows that are done down there, and then you know, uh, big designers are doing the, all the regionals, which are huge. It's probably important to know uh, that even though the show is small. Uh, Having a designer on board to make those decisions and make them tell and tell the story uh, and focus on telling the story visually is still essential. So even if you're doing a if tiny not more so, exactly. You're doing a tiny show. You have to have a designer on board to help you tell that story. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just six practicals. Yeah. Choosing those practicals. Yeah. Is even more important because people yeah. are going to look at them and, and understand those choices. Am I? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I remember um, years ago, Jan Kamaruk, uh did a show uh, called Alien Creature in the backspace at Pass Mirai. and I remember, I remember like cursing him because he only used eight lights, and I finally topped him with motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he used eight lights, and his, and he was up for Adora against the Lion King. Right. he won. You know, like, it, yeah, I mean, but he, I mean, the stuff he does is like, it's poetry. It's like damn poetry on stage where he creates, you know, I can't, I can't do what he does. That's why I'm not Jan Khameric. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if anybody ever, you know, ever, ever, if anyone ever doubted what you just said about making specific choices, uh, being important in a small space, like he proved it with that, and it was so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous how how the doors get broken up and how you know what theaters are competing again. Like well, it's ridiculous, but sometimes you know David does topple Goliath, you know, and it's hilarious.
0: And, and just as a matter of scale, The Lion King had a thousand source fours in it, on top of but besides all the moving lights. Yeah. So take
1: that, Broadway, and um, a gorgeous show. Go- Beautiful. I remember w- when we did two pianos in New York the first time, it had just opened in New York. And, and I remember Andy McKim saying, you know, I was talking to him on the phone about the something to do with the show, and he was trying to explain to me a, a problem they were having, and I was trying to solve it over the phone. And I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm going to see Lion King tonight. And I laughed at him because I pictured like Beauty and the Beast, people in big costumes, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then like, a week later, I'm in New York, and I'm passing the Disney store on Fifth Avenue, and they have some of the maquettes in the window and my jaw hit the floor. It's like some of the most beautiful work I've ever seen. You know, I yeah. got the Lion King, Julie Timor book right here. Right. Like I, it's astonishingly beautiful. It's a gorgeous show. I saw it in New York and in Toronto. I'd love to take my kids to it. So nothing against, you know, if Not Julie all. wants to call, I'd be happy to light her, I, her next Spider-Man
0: show. More than one theater artist, let alone the audience has been brought to tears by the opening number. Oh, yeah. With those
1: animals in the front oh, of us. Top of Act part. Two yeah. with, with the birds on sticks going mm-hmm. through the audience and the, 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 the woman in the, the baby elephant costume. It's like, I totally, I totally had tears in my eyes. It's like, oh, this is incredible. Yeah,
0: Exactly. Okay, so tell me how hmm. it's the late 90s. Pass not Pass Marais, sorry. Theater Direct is in the Legion Space. Theater Center. Square. Theater Center, Theater Direct.
1: They're touring <sighs> schools. Let oh, me start right. again.
0: It's the early. It's the late '90s. I can't even say it anymore. Paint us a picture. Of 1992. No, it's not, uh It's the late '90s. Uh, it was
1: 1999. The theater, this one I know. The
0: that's the from. real late '90s. Yeah. Uh, theater Center is it in was the, the dawning building. of a
1: new millennium.
0: We were all very hopeful. <laughs> and look what happened bastard. Uh, No, and then uh, you have this crazy idea to do a show without actors, which we've all dreamed about as designers. Um, Where did you start? Where did that come from? Where did you have this idea, first of all?
1: Uh, uh, I think it started in high school uh, with uh, a Samuel Beckett piece called Breath, and I remember reading that, that he may have written as a joke, I'm not sure. It was written somehow as the, as the, as like a curtain warmer for the play Old Oh Calcutta like and and how that came to be I have no idea but somebody was drinking too much of something uh anyway so he wrote this play which if you time it out is 35 seconds long which is an empty stage with a bit of garbage on it I can't remember what the actual word he uses but it's a much better word than garbage uh and the the lights rise with the breath fall with the breath Mm -hmm. curtain the end and I remember thinking, I remember that just sort of blew my mind. Like the idea that Samuel freaking Beckett had written a play with no actors. Like who else has written a play with no actors? And the answer is not very many people. Horent Alniak, it turns out, wrote one, which I have a copy of somewhere called Mathematics. But he was very fascinated when I was doing Breathe. I'm so, just,
0: let me just take a, a sidestep. We talk about Hrant Alniak. All the time. Oh yeah, <laughs> on the tunnel block. Jim Plaxton. I've got to work with Jim. Uh, like a bunch of people, uh, uh, and I, I think I need to do more, uh, have greater discussion because I, quite frankly, and I'm this is my own ignorance, um, have dismissed. Because I came into Toronto in the 90s, uh-huh. and a lot of the work, important work he did was in the 80s and 70s. Got remounted, obviously, Lucky Strike, etc. But um, did you, you see know, that?
1: Did you see? The I didn't then? see the remount. No, the remount was
0: fantastic. I apparently, it was great. I yeah. think
1: that's he. It, it should be a movie. I don't know why that's not an action movie. I really. Don't. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it should be. It, it totally should, should be totally be a film.
0: I yeah. should make that as a film. See, there you go. Check, there you go. You're in the country. You got yeah. lots of time on your hand. You can sit in your tub. Oh,
1: I got lots of time in the in middle of the backyard. On the, on the, yeah, My the fire there, mm-hmm. redneck hat. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Anyways, go on. So. Uh, her, okay, quick Rand story. Uh, the the first time, one of the I've worked with him a couple of times, but the first time I worked with him, uh, he he was describing this these dream scenes. I have to do the voice a little bit, and he wanted the light to be cold. It must be cold, okay? I want cold light. and I said, sure, no problem, I can do that. So we're in the backspace of Passmore, and I've got like these blues and make the blues come up for the dream scene. He's like, Why why is it blue? Why is everything fucking blue? And I said, Well you asked me for cold light. So huh? yeah, yes, cold. But she's naked. Like it's got to be passion. It's got to be red. It must be red. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. On the next break, you know, I'll change it over, but let's just set a level and we'll just work through it. And then we get to the next q And he goes, it's blue. Why is it still blue? And it's like, fine, I'll get a fucking ladder. And I went up and then I like changed it all up to red. And he goes, yes, now it's pash. I was like, oh, okay, fine. Sometimes no, what was yeah. the line? He said, how much longer must I be tormented by these lights? <laughs> it's was like, give me a damn extension ladder. I'll change them right now. That's enough. That's excellent. Yeah. All right. So then Breathe. <laughs> so Breathe. 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 Uh, breathe came out of a desire to do, uh, to direct something, uh, to finally, to, because I've been a hired gun for a long time. I mentioned to you earlier, you know, a little pre-interview that I almost quit lighting design and and because I, I always find it so frustrating to communicate with a director what I was going to do, you know, so that they would trust you enough to do your job because I used to dread doing lighting levels uh, because you'd bring up something and they'd go, Oh, you know, like, Oh, God, what have I misunderstood? What it that's why I remember the first time I ever saw an IQ, I was like, oh, Finally, you know, something that can go, Oh, she's over there. Oh, yeah, we changed that yesterday. Sorry, you didn't get you didn't find out about that. Yeah, no problem. And it's there, you know, like those things change my life. You know, I love IQs. Just a little band-aid. And I often won't even put them into a design. I'll just have them there. It's like, okay, now I need this. Or, oh God, I wish I had a little bit more there. There it is, you know, it's fantastic. Um, uh, breathe, what was my point? It came out of uh, of a desire to direct. It came out of a desire to create my own work. And I originally was going to do uh, my first thought was to direct um, uh, jump which was a Daniel McIver play which was uh, which w- we did in the backspace and I thought I'm gonna I want to direct that And it was Hiller. I was I had Hiller over for dinner and I was telling him about this. he was like, well what is it you really want to do? you know I said, well I was thinking about directing a production of jump and he said, no, you'll never it's comedy. you don't know a fucking thing about it. you can't do that do something else. And I said, well, there's this other thing I've always thought about was like this thing called breathe, which is taking breath and seeing if I can extend it into a full show or at least like a half hour show. And he said, yeah, that you should do that. And I applied for a grant and didn't get it. Mm -hmm. This is like the story of my life. Uh, Greenblatt actually wrote me a beautiful letter in support of it. uh, Basically slamming the idea. (laughs) He's like, I hate everything about this as a theater artist, as an actor, as a director, as a writer. I hate the idea of a play that has no words and has no actors. I hate everything about it. And because I feel so strongly about it, you must support this, you know? And I thought, that's great. I still have that letter somewhere. That's wonderful. Anyway, I didn't get the grant. And so Hiller said, well, fine, how much money do you need? And I said, "How much? what's the least you could do it for? So I wrote a little budget and I wrote a little grant to Hiller mm-hmm. and we, we became like a DNA seed show. Oh. Uh, out of his funding, he gave me a little tiny bit to do this workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we did a fundraiser the night before we loaded in, which was stupid because I lost a whole day of tech to doing a fundraiser that made no money whatsoever. Sure. Uh, that I, for years I had oh God, what's his name? There's another lighting designer for years bugged me about doing it again uh, because it was a it, it came out of um, something that Sandra Marcroft told me about that she did in university where they were given six lights and you had to pick a song yeah. and an object. So I did this exhibition of lighting design yeah. the night before we loaded into breathe where I brought in a bunch of designers and they picked an object and they picked a song and they had to light this object in tune to the song. I thought, that's this is great, it'd be a great night out. Nobody but like a handful of line designers showed up for it, and I think somebody else should do it. But it shouldn't be you should do it. You should do it as as a fundraiser for as a, the title. As a fundraiser for the title block. Yeah, we're
0: having hard enough time getting people to sign up for two bucks an episode on Patreon, so anyway. that's a little plug for Patreon. You should really sign up for Patreon. Uh, so I think that I'm not going to stage any events. I'm going to stay away from events. I did leave theater. Uh, more or less several years ago because of the events part so yeah perhaps i'll just leave that to you to organize no it's never gonna happen come on
1: it's never gonna happen anyway so then i did breathe uh but the process for breathe, like the first thing i did was hired uh an actress and a dramaturge (laughs) and we did a little workshop uh where we just talked about what uh what the hell we were gonna do like like can you do a story? Should there be a, does there need to be a story? And we learned a lot and we did a lot of reading, a lot of discussing, a lot of recordings and just tried stuff. Uh, and in the end, uh, finally hit on something that worked uh, for her, for Jane Miller, the the actress, to breathe along with. Uh, for It's basically, we did a guided meditation where she had on headphones, much like I have right now. And, uh, and I talked to her And she listened to me and that way I could chart out what she was doing, what she was feeling, where we were in the process. And I had like this whole thing written out that we went through and I was, and I had a timer and she would hit a little button and a light would flash. It's like, okay, now we're moving on to the next part and the next part. So I was able to break it up into different sections. Uh, And, and, it had like a very classic story structure and that it had a beginning, a middle, you know, and an end. It had like a an introduction and it had like a rising action. It had, you know, a climax and then it had a denouement and then the curtain came down. So in in play structure, it could not have been more traditional. Uh, and that's about the only thing about it that was traditional. But I'll never forget like the night before, after that, that lighting design exhibition. I was lying in bed that night. I couldn't sleep. I was so nervous. And I realized that I could be making the biggest mistake of my life. Like, here's a lighting designer doing a show with no actors. Like, what could be more pretentious? Like, this could end my career. (laughs) You know? It's like, what the hell was I thinking? And so I spent that whole week, you know, just like, Determined to pull this thing off, and like the tech end of it was so huge, you know, there were so many cues because, as you can imagine, when you record the for thirty minutes, mm-hmm. and every light has to be measured. It, like literally, we took the sound wave and measured off. Okay, if this is a hundred, you know, which it never was, mm-hmm. you know, and this is zero. You know, you've got to measure every single one of these, and then the duration, and then you've got to program all that in. And in the end, we didn't. We had to bring in a different lighting board because the board at the theater center couldn't handle it. You couldn't handle that many cues. It's like, th- it was more than three hundred, like three hundred and fifty some odd cues. I and, think
0: they had an idea or something at that point, didn't they? It, they? it was, was a computer, strand something. I, it, oh, it was the M- MX with the yeah, golf ball. No, or an LX the, or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I,
1: I always hated strand boards. I still to this day I'm not so afraid.
0: probably only had 128 cues or something yeah or
1: something I don't like that. it couldn't break 200 I remember that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think, yeah, I that's think right. 200 was that the was the
0: strand thing the mantrix was the same way where you couldn't break if you had if you went to 202 you had to like change the
1: disc or something it's so stupid it was bizarre yeah. anyway so we ended up bringing in an etc mantrix, board and, and the lightboard M and we did it. Sorry. Yeah, you you know this stuff much better than me. You're the gearhead here, Andy. And uh, anyway, so programming all that. And uh, it took so long. And poor Sandra Marcroft was in this booth that we built with no windows. She couldn't see the stage. It's not like there's anything to see anyway. And she just had on headphones and had to listen to it. She operated it manually because we couldn't figure out the time code thing. When we did Breathe the second time, we had it all on SMPTE time code. Oh, yeah. And I bought the, the Roscoe Horizon system, which I still use when I tour with Stowe Union. Mm-hmm. I take that with me. But now on my old uh, ThinkPad, the, the screen's broke, so I have to get a... I asked the theater to provide me with a monitor, which, of course, everyone's got kicking around nowadays. Yeah. So I still use the Horizon system. I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I was thinking about doing the new version of Breathe On It, but I think, I think I'm going to run it live uh, this mm-hmm. time. I think we're actually going to do it live instead of recording it, mm-hmm. um, just given the, uh, the amount of time we have. Uh, I'm going to try it, which is maybe suicidal. But I'm gonna run it all off of subs. But the first time we did breathe, we we had we we did all this math on the on the curve and on the you know, on on the limits of everything. What we never did before we ran it the first time was we never set zero. Mm-hmm. Uh the preheat, because when you have lights that are only coming up to nine percent mm-hmm. and then going back out again, they don't even come on. Mm-hmm. So when we when we did our first invited dress on the Sunday night, mm-hmm. literally the first 15 minutes of we're in complete blackness, like complete black as we built a theater within the theater. So it, like it was black. Like I've had, a have had perfect blackouts maybe three times in my whole career. And I mean, perfect. Estonia was the best.
0: And that doesn't include drinking in the past Mariah shop. <laughs> no, it most certainly does <laughs> no. not.
1: Hilarious.
0: But we don't do that because that's a, that'd be a liquor license violation. That's yeah, never occurred. I don't even know what you're talking about. No, no, no. It's a, I was, I was probably
1: on, on drugs or something. <laughs> I smell an edit. At <laughs> but, uh, yeah, in Estonia, we were in a theater the size of the Royal Alex. It was white, and we had a perfect blackout. Mm-hmm. You know, it was crazy awesome and scary. Anyway, people still love the show. We still love Breathe anyway, even though it was in the dark, uh, which speaks to the power of the imagination. But in the end, it was probably the best thing I ever did for my career was doing Breathe. Was, for the first time, uh, people looked at me as an artist, mm-hmm. uh, and took me serious on that front. And I had several people that that hired me specifically because I'd done that. And it's still happening now, like a whatever it is, you know, fifteen years later, mm-hmm. uh, I just uh I'm uh, I met with a, a writer and a director and they actually called me because I'd done Breathe. Mm-hmm. Because they've they're doing a show that had a very specific lighting issue that I'm doing in the spring at Cannes Stage and they're like You know, you're the guy that did breathe. You could probably do this. (laughs) Like, wow, wow! Like, there's no way you could have seen it. There's no video of it. There's a few photographs, but that's it. You know, we tried to videotape it several times.
0: Yeah, that never works out, does it? The uh, oh,
1: it really didn't work.
0: One of the things that um, no theater just can't be put down onto any kind of medium. You kind of have to experience it, right? Yeah, and word of mouth is really important. Yep. In that case. Yep. To sell it. Yeah. So when you move to the second so so there's no such thing as a remount. What did you change in the second? <laughs> uh everything.
1: Iteration? It was a complete rebuild. It was a new it was a new recording of Jane. It was a new uh, new musical composition. It was a new set. The design was the same, but it was I made it bigger to accommodate a larger audience. Uh, wider, but I also made it shorter. Uh, so that it could tour, um, and it did, which was great. Uh, it tour it did uh, did the run in Toronto. Then it went to the ICA, uh, the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, mm-hmm. uh, England, uh, as part of the Mime Festival, oh, wow. which uh, it piggybacked on the Overcoat. Literally, mm-hmm. our production manager Sean Baker was also the production manager for the Overcoat, mm-hmm. and he had about five feet of space at the end of one of their um, shipping containers. Mm-hmm that we made sure our set could fit into, literally. Uh, so a lot of design choices went into that. So And it was a one-way trip because there was no way we were going to afford to ship it back. So it went to London and did a sold-out run there. We actually added shows before we even left Toronto, which was great. Uh, and then a couple of years later, we took it to the Traverse in Edinburgh and did it there. And then it died a quiet death a few years later on a pig farm because we couldn't get any interest in taking it anywhere else. I mean, yeah. But phenomenal. I remember telling somebody, you know, I was explaining to somebody I was a bit disappointed in, you know, that it didn't do more. And they said, you did a sold-out run at the ICA. Like, <laughs> what more did you think this show was going to do? You know, be grateful. But it was it was a nice moment when I got off the plane with that in London where I, I've i done so many tours, you know. I remember so many times that we'd be walking you know, to where people greet you. And I'd be walking just to the left and behind Robert. Mm -hmm. And there'd be a sign up there. And I was invisible. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, you know, I knew that sign was going to say Steve Lucas. Mm -hmm. And it was like, in that moment, I sort of achieved a dream I'd have for years of like touring with a show that I devised. And at the same time, when it was over, it was over. It was like, and that's happened several times in my life where it's like, I really want to do this and then you do it. And then it's now what? So so I went back to being a designer, but more so, you know, like I've really I've been very lucky in that I've worked as much as I have with the amazing people I have and uh and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I needed to get that out of my system, you know, to get breathe up and do something of my own and now I'm more than happy to just a designer again mm-hmm. you know it's same way like i've produced shows and i don't ever have to do that again you know like i've done costume design i don't ever have to do that again mm-hmm. you know you know so i've done pretty much everything in this business that you can do you know i've worn pretty much every hat at some point mm-hmm. which gives you an appreciation for what you know for the people who are actually really good at it mm-hmm. you know yeah. but so now i stick to what i do but
0: that's lovely. I think that we'll just end there. I think it's a perfect place to end. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Good. You're like the book bookend guy. I mean, that's perfect. Cool. I would just fade to black. Thank you so much for being on the title block. It's my pleasure. <laughs> That was designer Steve Lucas speaking to me from his design studio in Cremore Ontario, last September. Thank you, Steve. Next time I sit down with Beth Cates to talk about her career and philosophy. And don't forget to join us with The Bellows on February 22nd at 7.45. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com forward slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Now, don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students and teachers or listen to it where you try to fathom why Theatre Ontario did not get Steve Lucas a grant to apprentice Little Bear Lepage. I mean, come on. I'm Michael Cruz and I'll see you next time on the Title Block.